mean, this entire episode is about how Arthur doesn't die, despite the episode being called The Death of Arthur. <laughs> they couldn't have used that title for the finale, really? <laughs> Welcome back to my Listen Guys, a bi-weekly podcast about BBC's Merlin, where we talk about the show, the ships, the fandom, the characters, and everything else we can come up with. I'm Amotastic. And I'm Miss Snowfox. And today we are finally going to review the last episode of the first season! I can't believe it's already <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's... we've made it all oh. the way through already. I mean, what's already? It's been over a year, but <laughs> still. You know. But still, it just, I can't believe that, like, season one is now, that's it. Done. Yeah, it's, that's, that's it. That's crazy to me. Yeah. yeah. I mean, obviously, we'll talk about season one as, you know, like, yeah, some as more, a whole but it's thing. just, yeah, that's it. Yeah. No more, no more season one episodes. So, yeah. Ah. Yeah. Speaking of which, since we expect this episode to be another pretty long one, uh, we will probably end up splitting this into two yeah. <laughs> just to uh, uh just to uh explain what momo means basically we're going to be doing a, a, the episode review as normal and then as a little bonus gift for you guys we're going to do a hopefully uh shorter than regular episode length but a season one wrap up and uh we'll explain more about that when we get to it but it's yeah just essentially what it says on the tin we're going to wrap up our thoughts about season one as a whole so yeah Exactly. So before we get started with all of that, let's hear some news. The fan artist Marie Louis launched a Patreon profile. With the help of Patreon, they want to create a Merlin fan comic. If you're interested in backing that artist on this journey, check them out on Tumblr or Patreon. This is your reminder that Camelot Drabble and Merlin Stills are ongoing weekly or monthly challenges. Camelot Drabble is for all the writers and artists, and Merlin Stills is for any graphic makers. There is also the ongoing Merlin Rewatch, organized by Merlin Forever on LifeJournal. Every Friday you can join the Rewatch. They're currently up to Season 2 of Merlin. You can jump in any time. And that has been the news, which means it is now time for some talkbacks. Yes. Yes. All right, we have a couple of short ones. So our first comment is from Lao Pendragon, who commented on our episode review of Gates of Avalon. And Lao said, Just jumping in while listening to this episode to say that Uther does call Merlin by his name, twice as far as I can tell. One time, like the two of you said, in 503, when he tries to tell Arthur Merlin is a sorcerer, and the other time is in The Witchfinder in Season 2. Uh, Lau just watched this episode and coincidentally had to giggle herself because she realized that Uther called Merlin by his name. So they, this might be the only time he really does? Anyway, Aredian accuses Merlin to be a sorcerer and wants the guards to search his room, and Uther addresses Merlin directly by saying, Merlin? Merlin answers him, I have nothing to hide from him. And Lau promised to tell if they find more, but uh, yeah, 
thanks for reminding me that we have this theory that Uther never ever says Merlin's name ever. Yeah. <laughs> and we found another one since then in the Excalibur episode already. So yeah, that was... We did? I forgot. Yeah, when he's... <laughs> When Gaius asks him who, uh, uh, who oh, made yeah. the sword. Oh, yeah, Merlin, yeah, he, yeah, he, he mentions him by name, like, Merlin gave me the sword, that's right. It's still weird for me to hear him <laughs> say his name. Yeah. It honestly, like, I, it, I think we can count on one hand how many times it happens. Yeah, I mean, so... we are now up to, what, three times? Four times? Four, I think, Four. yeah. Amazing. All right, next comment is by Elirwen. And everyone commented on our Merthyr shipping episode and said, Thanks for lots of reading for a weekend or a month. I assume we made a, we gave a lot of wrecks. Everyone goes on to say, I just wanted to say that when you talk about Merlin being too tiny to be the one to save Arthur from physical dangers, all I see is season five Merlin and that one wasn't tiny at all. So I guess it really depends on which kind of Merlin you see. That's that's true, I suppose. Season 5 Merlin was rather buff. Yeah, but like, let's just be honest right now. He's no Arnold Schwarzenegger. Like, he's really... <laughs> no, like, come he's on, not. guys. And like, even If you put him next five, to Arthur, he's still tiny. <laughs> yeah, like he's taller than him, but he's, you know, and I think it's less to do with he's how many muscles he has and how... Taller. He's like an inch taller. Yeah, but it's still noticeable when they're stood next to one another, and it's very sweet. Um, But, like, it's less to do with, like, how many muscles he has. It's more to do with the fact that, you know, he's he doesn't, in my opinion, have as, like, as much kind of visible muscle, and it's the way he's dressed, and it's kind of the way he's kind of... We're meant to perceive him as, I think, the smaller one of the two. You know, he, when he's out with the knights, like, he even looks smaller by association that he never is wearing chainmail. He's dressed as a normal person, and the clothes he wears makes him look kind of, yeah, small, skinny. They're not defined. Yeah. Yeah. So next to the, especially once Arthur is in his chainmail a lot more, like he has a lot of padding under there as well. So he actually looks bigger than he actually is uh, because of all of the padding. So I know what you mean, Elwyn. Like, yeah, he is. Yeah. He is definitely like not, but you know, also don't forget my, my, even though I've, like, I do watch season five episodes from time to time, but the ones I go back to, are actually I probably rewatched stuff from season two and three more than the other seasons and season two especially he's like he's see through so you're really not you know like <laughs> it's just like I can't see him being able to take anyone down apart from Cedric apparently but we'll get to that when we do Castle yeah. but I know what you're talking about but yeah I just think he's meant to he's meant to seem smaller than the others just by the fact that he's not a knight. And then Elowen also says, To be honest, what totally broke me and pretty much changed how I write Merlin in most of my fics is The Living and the Dead. Ever since I laid my eyes on half-naked, buff, beardy, straight-backed, confident Nathan, my Merlins are buff, confident, and dominant. Which just illustrates a point I probably made at some point somewhere on this podcast, which is that the way we write these characters is so often influenced by either their actors or other characters that they've played. Like this trope of Merlin being 
um, a scrawny emo kid coming from Doctor Who, the, like this one episode on Doctor Who, or um, Merlin being a vegetarian coming from Colin being a vegetarian, or a modern author liking football because Bradley plays football and has a passion for it. Like, and this is just another of these examples, like the living in that. And I agree, he's I find him hot in that one, but that's just you know you admit that this influenced you in how you write him just because you find that version of Colin attractive and that's how you write into your Merlin which isn't wrong like do whatever you like it's your your writing it's just something I've noticed where you know we as fans we tend to uh merged the different characters and and actor personalities into one and then just fit it into the fandom that we like most out of all the things yeah and i think what's interesting to me as well is that you say that it's his character i mean i know that you said earlier on that you kind of see season five merlin as kind of more of that type of guy but that nathan was the one that made you start to really see him differently and it's interesting because even though I'm like, I don't really know where I sit in terms of like what, what kind of Merlin I see, but I can completely see that Merlin and I've never seen living in the dead, but I see him even in season one, we'll get to like, it's weird. Cause we're going to talk about him in La Morte de Arthur very, very shortly in this episode. And there are moments in that episode so early on in season one, uh, where I am like, wow, like he seems really dangerous, confident, like, he knows what he's about you know and i think that even uh in the show itself when he's still meant to be scrawny you know and uh inexperienced he he has those moments where you can tell that there's more underneath there and i think that it doesn't come out that often it comes out a lot more as time goes on but i think that it's it's definitely lurking under there so um i find it interesting that it's uh, that it's another character that kind of helped you think of him that way rather than the way he is in the show which i think is quite bordering on some kind of dangerous person i don't know did that make any sense at all <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> it made sense in my head I well, don't know. that's good that's that's all we can ask <laughs> well i mean i'm not the one listening so i mean our listeners will tell us whether it made sense or not good Okay, we had one more comment from LON on another episode, which was our review of Mark of Nimoy. And their comment, it cracks me up, because uh, LON said, I've been calling the Afank Miss July ever since I bought the official Merlin Season 1 calendar, where the Afank occupies the July page. So, this is hilarious. That's awesome. Absolutely awesome. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much for sharing that tidbit because now I'm imagining uh, the Afang wearing a bikini and going to a beauty pageant. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. So thank you as ever for all your for all your comments. If you also want to leave us a comment, dear listener, you can do it on the following platforms. You can visit our website at melissa.parakaproductions.com or you can just type Merlissa into Google and it should come up. If you leave your comment on the website, we will react to it on this podcast. But of course, you can also find us and comment on our things on Tumblr, 
where we are awesome or listen. You can reblog our posts, you can reply to them, you can send us an ask on Tumblr, and we will reply to them on Tumblr. You can tweet at us at Merlisten, and you know how all the ways how to communicate on Twitter. I'm sure send us a direct message or tweet at us, reply to our tweet, retweet our tweet with a comment. There are so many ways to talk to us on Twitter. You can do it, and we will reply to you there. You can email us at melissa.podcast at gmail.com and then we will reply to you via email. You can comment on our podcast on iTunes. And finally, we have a Discord for which you can get the invite on our Tumblr or our website or you can message either Rox or me to get it. And then on Discord you can directly react to episodes you can talk to other listeners you can talk to us you will find out when we are looking for new guests and then figure out when to come on the show so many options that discord offers you and i think that's pretty much everywhere where you can get in touch with us indeed yes okay finally time to talk about le mort d'arthur so first up in case there is someone out there who doesn't actually know what this episode is about. Uh, I'll read you the episode summary from the Merlin Wikipedia page. When on a hunt, Arthur encounters a huge monstrous creature he has never seen before. Gaius realizes it is a questing beast, a creature conjured from the nightmares of a long-dead king. The bite of the questing beast is always fatal. When Arthur faces the creature again, it is vanquished, but Arthur is bitten and his life hangs in the balance. Trying to find how to save Arthur's life, Merlin is told by the great dragon to seek the Isle of the Blessed, where members of the old religion have the power to save the future king. However, there is a price to pay. For a life to be saved, another life must be forfeit. Yes. I'm like, this is, I feel like this is the first time they don't do like a big cliffhanger, sort of. I feel like that's a pretty big cliffhanger. I mean, it is sort of a cliffhanger, but yeah, like... Other other summaries from the wiki we usually end with a with a question like can they be saved or what's going to happen next? You know. <laughs> it's not so much I mean it's still the dun 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 moment with the another life has to be given, but it's not as as dramatic. It's more matter of fact. <laughs> <laughs> We're at that point now. <laughs> yeah. Also, is there um I mean we probably won't be actually talking about this later, but like, does Gaius actually explain the thing that the questing beast is like? What did it say in the summary? Like, no, it's not mentioned in the episode. Yeah, at okay, all. good because I was confused <laughs> there for a second. So this is, this is uh, just the Merlin Wiki edit things. <laughs> we can't. You trust mean it's it. not completely accurate? Yes. <laughs> How can this be? It's the internet. Everything has to be true. <laughs> oh dear. Speaking of true things, here are some statistics. This episode aired for the first time on the 13th of December in 2008. There were four female characters in this episode who had lines. They are Morgana and Gwen and also Nimue and Hunith. And four male characters with lines who are, as per usual, Arthur, Merlin, Gaius, and Uther. 
the enemy or monster of the week are the questing beast and supposedly Nimue. Merlin kills one creature, which is the questing beast, and one person, who is Nimoy. So, I know I've already been talking for a while, but I want to tell you about the questing beast because I think it's awesome. Okay. <laughs> so, the name for the questing beast doesn't really come from quest the way we know it. Like, knights go on a quest to find, I don't know, a sacred object or something. The thing is, the questing beast in the legends is, it looks pretty much the way it it looks on on Merlin, like with the with the head of a head and neck of a snake, and the hoofs of a horse, and the the body of a leopard. So that that much is accurate. And then what we didn't see on Merlin, but which is, what is in the legends is that from the questing beast's stomach, you can hear the barks of wild dogs. And these dogs are hunting. And hunting dogs, like dogs on a hunt, were also called like questing dogs. These dogs were, you know, on a hunt, they were questing for food. And that's why the beast is called the questing beast because it sounds like hunting dogs dogs who are hunting now the what the really interesting thing is is how the questing beast in the legends came about which is why i stumbled over the description of the merlin wiki because it's not quite right but it's also not quite wrong <laughs> the way the thing happens in the legends so in the legends arthur encounters the questing beast, while King Pelinor, who is, by the way, Percival's father, is hunting the beast. And the beast ignores Arthur in this one. Like, the beast just doesn't care about Arthur at all. <laughs> Which is ironic, because in this one it just attacked him. Pelinor then explains that it is his destiny and duty to kill the beast. And here is why. This is the really interesting part. Among Pelinor's ancestors... There was a princess who loved her brother in a way that sisters shouldn't love their brothers. Which means that Rox will enjoy this incestuous interlude. Hey! hey. <laughs> I like that you've just now accepted that this rumor about you exists. I mean, look, no, all I was going to say is that, you know, Arthur and Morgana also love each other <laughs> in a very specific way. <laughs> so yeah. that's clearly... You know, not unique to this particular questing beast <laughs> no, story. <laughs> definitely not. Anyway, the brother refused his sister because he was like, nope. And then his sister made a deal with a demon because, of course, she does. <laughs> she said she'd give the demon anything he wants in return for making her brother love her. And the devil says that he wants to have sex with her once and then she'll get her brother to love her forever. And she's like, all right, then let's do it. And then she's surprised that they're actually having sex. And they, then she gets pregnant, which also apparently surprises her. And the demon disappears without granting her wish, which also surprises the princess. And I'm just like, why are you surprised? <laughs> anyway, their father notices that his daughter is pregnant eventually because apparently he is not blind. And she tells him the whole story, revealing her love for her brother. And then, I don't know how, but she sort of accidentally accuses her brother of raping her. 
And then she realizes what she's done and swears that her brother isn't the baby's father after all, that he didn't rape her. But her father doesn't believe her anymore. And so he has his son arrested and then sentenced to death. And the son was tied to a stake and was supposed to be torn apart by wild dogs. And as these wild dogs approach, they are barking loudly. And then the prince has a vision of the beast that his sister would give birth to. And this beast would be an abomination that would make the same sound as the dogs that were just about to tear him apart. And after the creature is born, it looks exactly as horrible as he envisioned. And it sounds exactly like the prince about to be killed by these dogs thought it would sound. And the beast goes to live in the forest. And it will forever be a symbol of shame for King Pelinor's family's bloodline reminding everyone of the family's penchant for incest, filicide, and a desire to make pacts with the devil. So, that's fun, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> it definitely makes sense why Gaia says it's a bad omen. <laughs> <laughs> that's for it's, sure. It's, it's, yeah, however, it doesn't... However, it is not, like, old religion. The uh, devil, I guess. I mean, I, I suppose. Know. I don't um, know. Yeah. I mean, other sources in the legends also described it as a beautiful creature and the noise that comes from its belly by their interpretation are the beast's offspring tearing it apart from the inside. And then most authors went uh, like who went with this interpretation of like the beast's own children killing it from the inside. They used it as a symbol to condemn bad Christians and also Jews, because in their opinion, the offspring killing their mother are either people who talk in church or Jews who are trying to destroy Christianity. Which only goes to show that as long as there have been Jews, there have been people who hate them for one reason or another. I wanted to say that I personally like the version of the beast being Sir Pelliner's personal symbol of shame. And I'm disappointed that on BBC's Merlin, Sir Pelinor was killed in the Excalibur episode and potentially never knew that he was supposed to have his own destiny. <laughs> However, <laughs> it's also possible that he knew of his own destiny and was ashamed of his incestuous demon deal-making, son-killing ancestors. <laughs> and that's why he was so ready to put himself at the mercy of a mysterious black knight. There's a new headcanon oh, for gosh. you. I mean, <laughs> poor Pelinor. <laughs> Truly, poor Pelinor. <laughs> anyway, this is the story of the questing beast. The actual story of the questing beast. As we know from BBC's Merlin, did things slightly differently. <laughs> but at least they stayed somewhat true to uh, what the questing beast is supposed to look like. There was also, I read this and a couple of sources where, like, from how it's, you know, always described with, like, the the head and neck of a, of a snake, the spotted body of a jaguar, and the haunches of a lion, and the hoofs of a deer. It's just what medieval people who'd never seen a giraffe tried to explain what a giraffe looked like. Oh my god, that's amazing. So that's, like, that's a widely accepted explanation for the appearance of the of the questing beast said it's it's a giraffe and they just didn't know how to explain what a giraffe looked like because no one else had seen a giraffe all right uh episode review yes 
you wanted to give your overall thoughts on this episode. Yeah, let's let uh, let's have some hot takes. <laughs> hot takes right here. Um, uh, so I I mean there's there's very little negative stuff to say about. I really like this episode. I think that uh, the tension in this episode is amazing. You'll notice if you sit down and watch it that the, especially the beginning of the episode, like the first half, it moves at a very, very quick pace. The scenes are very short until we kind of, well, really until we get to the Isle of the Blessed, the first time that Merlin's there. The scenes just move really rapidly and it's kind of, um, you know, you never actually know what's around the corner. And I think because obviously as fans, we've seen this episode quite a few times now. I think it's, hard to imagine what it must have been like the first time someone watched it you know but um I actually saw it with a friend of mine who saw it for the first time quite recently and she loved it she had no idea what was coming especially because it's a season finale you don't know what to expect and I think it delivers as a season finale so so well it's really great and the emotional impact of it the first time you see it I mean I cried the first time I watched it I remember crying at quite a few scenes actually because I think you know now knowing what is awaiting these characters it's hard to imagine that this is a this is an episode that would make us sad but at the time I I was really impacted by this do you remember what your first impression was of this episode Momo? Unfortunately no I don't remember I I mean I also already knew that he wasn't going to die because I knew there was going to be a season two. Oh, yeah. But I <laughs> so mean... I was like, and like then for me, often it is like if I already know that this character isn't actually going to die, then I have a, I have a disconnect. But like it might have been different 10 years ago when I first saw it. I, I really don't remember what I felt when I first watched this episode. Um, but one thing that I really do like about this episode is that it's a really concise story. Again, like with To Kill the King, there's really no fluff in there. There's not really anything that doesn't, you know, help to build the tension. Or I think it's a really great. And actually, um, we'll get to uh, Morgana. But apart from Morgana, there's actually everyone kind of gets to do something you know everyone gets a, their time to shine in this episode all the characters not just the main four but Gaius and Uther as well have some really impactful scenes some of Uther's scenes in this episode of my favorite that he's ever had Gaius has some incredible moments that really really resonated with me and I think that I wish they'd done more stuff like this I wish they'd going forward done more episodes like this where it was kind of really about these characters and again we'll get to these particular scenes but there's a lot of talk here about the um the prequel that never was <laughs> you know all of the stuff that happened 20 years ago and obviously Nimue's in this episode and it just kind of makes me mourn for the show we could have had and we'll talk about this more in the season one recap of course but I just feel as though this episode really kind of, I think, reached uh, a really great high in terms of the quality of the storytelling that we could have had. And it's just a real shame that kind of season two really kind of, I think, set a lot of things back, as I'm sure everyone agrees on. And I think that 
instead of using the building blocks of what especially this episode kind of laid out in terms of like the stakes and in terms of you know again going back to what happened 20 years ago and all that kind of stuff I think that could have really been utilized more going forward and it's a real shame but again I just really love this episode there are some things that are a bit like okay which we always like to nitpick of course but I think it's really solid what do you think do you think it's a pretty solid episode or do you yeah. kind of feel mad about it no I uh just uh re-watching it the other day I just felt like yeah this is actually a good episode even though I have things to nitpick about it obviously yeah. because I nitpick every episode if given half a chance but it's it's a pretty good episode actually I like it I really like it um it's probably my second favorite finale I think Last Dragon Lord is still my favorite finale. Um I I I really do think it's the best one, but this is this is a very close second. It's very very different to The Last Dragon Lord, but I think it works really really well as a final episode. Um yeah, I really really like it a lot. So, shall we get into the scene by scene? Yes. Awesome. Uh so the first scene we have is the opening scene which we've named the one with the knights in the forest. Um, I just, just, just these random nights in the background always just crack me up in season one and two, but like season one, especially like we never see them again. Uh, we have absolutely no idea what their names are. They're just there. <laughs> and they're just always like, oh God, every single time that we have shots like yeah. this. I mean, there is, uh, there is Sir Betty Bear. He gets named. He's the one who screams and dies because yeah, he's eaten by the know. questing beast. He's the only one who gets a name. And then he's dead. <laughs> like, he, doesn't even, he doesn't even get credited. I was looking up what is what the actor's name is and he's not he's not on IMDB. He's not in the in the any credits of the episode. He doesn't even get credited for uh, his role. Uh, is that even legal? <laughs> I don't know. Oh, maybe because he didn't get lines. But he screams. That's a line. <laughs> that might not have been him screaming though, because it happens off screen. It could have fair. been. Um, it could have been ADR'd by some random uh, crew member. That's fair. But so, oh, the poor sod. He he gets a name. He dies, and then he doesn't even get credited. Like if you if you look on the Merlin wiki, because I check there to see if they have a uh, an actor's name. The picture they have of him is when he falls down and looks in shock up at the questing piece. That's, <laughs> that's his profile picture. <laughs> that's amazing. And I love how they just keep using these like prolific, you know, Knights of Camelot yeah. from the legends for like these random dudes that just drop he's, like flies. He's probably just a French extra. <laughs> probably. <laughs> that's why they ADR'd his scream because it sounded too French. <laughs> He was like, oh, no. Yeah. Ah. Oh, no. <laughs> Tis but the scratch. <laughs> uh, sorry, uh, wrong wrong fandom. <laughs> um, I, yeah, it's it's interesting um, that, like, we open on just, like, a, another hunting scene for the finale. I guess, I don't know, it just... I'm surprised we didn't get more backstory as like, you know, why they're out on this hunt, all this kind of stuff, you they're, know. They're hunting whatever. for fun. And yeah. that's why Arthur needs like five nights with him, because he's hunting for fun. They're his chaperones now. 
and no chainmail on Arthur as usual. But chainmail. I miss. I nice. miss this casual Arthur from season one. His yeah, hunting but... outfit is so pretty. That's for the castle, not when you're out doing life-threatening hunting. But he wasn't expecting to be doing life-threatening hunting. He probably expected to hunt maybe a boar or a deer. To be fair, this can be life-threatening, but like, not the way that a questing beast is, or a griffin would have been, or <laughs> any of the other magical creatures he's fought. Um, there's a really sweet moment in this scene that I really like when, um, because Arthur's being a bit of a dick to me. Like, not, well, not like a dick, but being like, oh, you know, have you not got any skills? And then there's a bit where I think they hear, like, a noise or something, and Arthur looks behind him and sees that Merlin's really, really scared, and he kind of softens for a minute, and he's like, it's probably more scared of you than you are of it. And he has these moments occasionally where he actually kind of is like, oh shit, like he's really scared. I should probably make him feel better. And that kind of continues. Like we still get that, like even all the way through season five, which I think is really nice. And he's not all bad. He's not all bad. And I love that he actually like, he's always got Merlin like kind of in his peripheral because he knows that he can't take care of himself, you know? So it's like he, you can see in the background, he's always there trying to like, and you have moments, I mean, you know, He's the first one to come back and grab him when the questing beast attacks later on. He's pushing Merlin out the way. Like, I love that, you know, he actually does give a shit that Merlin is, you know, small and helpless, quote unquote, and, you know, can't defend himself. It's really sweet. This this scene is directly followed by, like, Arthur is still looking at Merlin. Merlin is looking behind Arthur and the beast appears. And Merlin is staring at the beast while Arthur is looking at Merlin. And then... Like, because Arthur, and then Arthur turns around to look at what Merlin is looking at, glances at the beast, looks back to Merlin as if to confirm, see, that's not scary. Then he looks back at the beast again, and his eyes go wide with surprise, and you can basically see him going in his head, oh shit, maybe we should be scared of this. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just, I love this, this little moment, it's just hilarious and sort of endearing, and it's great comedy acting, and Bradley is so good at that. And <laughs> when they run away, was that slow-mo really necessary? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> and Merlin really should be looking where he's running, rather than checking what's behind him. Like, that's not gonna help him. That's why he falls down, because he's not looking where he's going. Exactly. And then Bedivere gets killed because Merlin was looking where he went. I, I'm not going to lie, though. I see absolutely no logical reason why Bedivere would have been trapped by the beast when Arthur, Merlin, and the other knight that came to help managed to get away. They were all in the same place. Why did he stay behind and get, and why didn't why did you stand there and accept his fate? As soon as he looked at the beast, he should have turned around and legged it. Why, why do these people accept death so quickly? <laughs> they are knights of Camelot. They stare death in the face oh and then scream. <laughs> um. So we know that someone has died because we have the opening credits. Um, which usually means that someone has died. So <laughs> we have the opening credits. And then we have uh, the one with Gaiaspedia. We love him. Yeah. Although I thought it was, I thought the dragon was Dragonpedia and Gaius was Google. 
Fair Guy. enough. I mean, they're both... Guy is sort of both. Guy is either knows where to look or he just knows stuff. Yeah. Like, in this ep- in this scene, Guy is just knows without looking it up what's happening. <laughs> he is amazing. Um, I'm just constantly kind of in awe of Uther's, like... <sighs> Not ignorance, but like he's just so ready to shut down everything Gaius says, and the Gaius is always right. <laughs> the moment when Uther is like, uh, he says, "I conquered the old religion. Its omens mean nothing to me." That's not how that works. <laughs> That's literally not how any of this works, Uther. Just because you don't believe in magic doesn't mean magic doesn't exist. What do you mean, Uther's always right? <laughs> I'm just like, Uther, please. Also, what I really like is that Gaius is explaining the significance of the questing beast, and Uther all but rolls his eyes. Like, he's got this look on his face that says, here we go again. My husband (laughs) is foretelling the doom for the kingdom. Might as well start calling him Sybil Trelawney. (laughs) It's so cute. And I love it when Gaius, again, just... Why didn't we get more of this kind of stuff where he mentions that he saw the questing beast on the night that Igraine died? Yes, this foreshadowing of things that won't ever be explained. Right? Like, this is the thing. We're going to cover all this in the season one recap. But season one was just laying so much groundwork for, like, other things that never ended up happening. Like, season one is quite a big outlier, like, in terms of tone. Like, season two is nothing like season one, and nothing that happens in season one is ever really built upon. It's just left. And all the 20 years earlier stuff is constantly in there, and it's in this episode a lot. And, like, yeah, he's just retaliates with a, you know, I I told you never to speak of that night again, which, I mean, I'm pretty sure you've already spoken about it at length, already in this season Uther. yeah so you're a bit late to be making those demands now but yeah. of course none of that really matters because Uther finishes off the scene with uh, a swoosh of his cape and it's, <laughs> and it's very cool yeah. I like he's that. wearing that cape that I love that like goes across his neck like a like yeah. uh like a Prada or something yeah. like outfit that would be worn by Miranda Priestley just like swoosh <laughs> I like that Arthur is trying to be diplomatic in this scene where he's like, okay, dads, stop fighting. Whatever it is, we need to kill it because it's dangerous. Exactly. Oh, God. It's adorable. Does Uther have a drink in his hand in this scene? No, I don't think so. Because I feel like that was a a thing that we were trying to watch out for because I think Tony said that Uther had like a drinking problem because he's constantly got a drink in his hand. (laughs) So we should probably start keeping an eye on that. But we're already at the end of season one yeah. and we failed miserably. We'll, we'll have to make it a goal for season two. 2019 goals. <laughs> yeah. Drinking game. Every time Uther drinks, you drink. Oh, God. He's got a higher tolerance than me, I'm sure. So basically, the only other note I had for this scene was when Gaius says that it... The questing beast is a bad omen. It marks the sign of a time of upheaval or something. And I'm just like, I I, I swear that the Merlin writers just write random words just to see what sounds interesting. Because what upheaval? Like, literally, as soon as this episode is over, nothing happens 
for over a year. So what period of upheaval are they talking about? I'm, I'm assuming, I don't know, maybe Arthur's death and what it would have meant if he had died. I don't know. It's... Don't try to explain it. There's no, no I'm... <laughs> Save your breath. It's okay. <laughs> but that's what I'm saying. It's like, if then season two had started out with, like, and I know that, like, Cornelius Segan, but it's not really the same. Like, you know, I'm talking about serious stuff, you know? If season two, oh, my God, if season two had started with, like, a grain stuff being revealed... How cool, like, that would have made sense, but obviously they would never have done that, like, but, yeah, the questing beast appears at a time of upheaval, for no reason, apparently, and there was actually no upheaval to speak of. Do you have anything for the other scene with Gaiaspedia Magic Edition? No, again, just, like, these scenes move very rapidly, which I really like. They're very short scenes, all of them. Yeah, that scene is literally just Gaius explaining the same thing to Merlin, only with, like, now magic involved. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And like that, you know, one bite from the questing beast will kill you. There is no cure. Dun, dun, dun. Doosh. Yeah. Then we have the one with Morgana's nightmare. Yeah, and it's nice I... to see Gwen comforting her. Yeah, it's so... That's a super cute Morgwen hurt comfort here. But also, since when does Gwen sleep in Morgana's antechamber? I mean... The obvious answer would be since they started fucking, obviously, but but that's morning though. Like she could have just started her her day. Is it morning? I thought it was supposed to be like night. No, that's like, and the only reason I know that is because I remember when I tried vidding it. Like when you actually look at it compared to the actual nighttime nightmare scenes, which are actually dark. Like because because okay. she gets out of bed and immediately runs down the stairs. Like because yeah, the following okay. scene is yeah. Arthur. Yeah. So yeah. it looks like you you would logically think it's nighttime, okay. but no, she's it's like first thing in the morning. But yeah, I mean, okay. when probably was there cleaning and then that's why she started okay. sleeping nearby afterwards because Morgana like is clearly off the rails now like in terms of nightmares and stuff so okay, okay. I, I guess that counts but yes. it's it's nice it's nice yeah so the next one is the one with the courtyard white shots um like just yes. this pretty castle all around and <laughs> we have hysterical Morgana straight out of bed not even putting on any more clothes. I'm just like, what? Like, this would never happen. What's, what must the knights be thinking? That's what I was... Like, no one's saying anything. And no one's like... Like, she's not... like, And not even that she's in a nightgown. But she's like, yelling hysterically. Making no she's sense. She's naked, practically. <laughs> yeah, but also, like, just what she's saying. Like, I've seen terrible things. Like, I, like in this magic-fearing society, I'm surprised, A, no one really caught onto that. And B, that, like... She's not kind of perceived as some weirdo after this, like yeah. by everyone else at court. Yeah. Again, especially when Merlin of... is like, "I should take her to guys," and she's like, "No, no, don't." Yeah, it's just, <laughs> and like she's she's still hysterical. Like she has two knights taking her by the arms and escorting her back to her rooms. Like, yeah. what the actual? Yeah, I mean, I will say that it's you know this is the last Arwen the last that we're going to have armor armor yes. i sorry armor yes that's ah. it no oh. more armor well they have uh one scene together in season 2 literally one scene 
It's yeah, it, but it's nice that like he's kind of worried about her and she's yeah. worried about him, and that's kind of yeah. in that. But we'll uh we'll talk about Morgana in this episode shortly. But um, yeah. also I feel this is the first time that we get for the for the love of Camelot. This is the first time. Is it? Yeah, I think okay. so. Okay. I think it is. I don't think we've had it before this, so it's a very poignant moment and became a very much. Uh, a saying in the show and in the fandom so yeah yeah then we have the one with the cave um and in the cave we have for all of you mirtha shippers a mirtha moment because arthur pushes merlin pushes away, merlin out of the way. <laughs> so merlin stays out of the way exactly so merlin doesn't get hurt and it's just oh this is the thing it's like arthur you don't need to be mean to him we all know the truth <laughs> You can, like, this is the, but this is the kind of shipping dynamic I love, though, because this is, like, instinctual. Like, he doesn't think about it. He just pushes him out of the way. And it's that kind of, you know, those are the moments that really actually matter when it comes to showing how someone feels about someone else. And I just really love that. Um, it's, uh, it's also nice to see Merlin reusing the spell that he used on Lancelot's, uh, um, uh, uh, yeah, Lance. I was going to say staff, but it's not a staff. No, it's, it's a Lance. Lance because he's Lancelot. He has a yeah. Lance. He's like, wait, this worked for a griffin. Probably works for a questing beast as well. Yeah. So it's good. Although, I'm, I mean, I would feel that perhaps it's, you know, a griffin and the omen of death aren't really a similar <laughs> caliber of magical being. Excuse you. It's an omen of great upheaval. <laughs> Not death. It's an omen of incest. <laughs> it's an omen of incest. And killing your own son. That's why there's no more armor. Because the questing beast died. Yeah, that's why there's no more armor. The questing beast, the champion of incest, died. It's so sad. <laughs> Merlin, Merlin how dare you? The questing that's why beast Merlin on... killed the questing beast because he wanted Arthur to himself. <laughs> Yeah, but then why did the questing beast bite Mer uh, bite Arthur if if the questing beast wanted Arthur to commit incest? Maybe he was hoping that the like grief of losing him would bring them closer together, Maybe. and they'd find a way to save his life. <laughs> <laughs> and Morgana would come to his side and say, "I want us to get married." What I like at the end of the scene, I like how when Merlin calls for help, his voice echoes in the yes. in the cave. It just underlines this feeling of helplessness and despair. I love it. <laughs> I love it too. And like the music stops when he shouts, uh, "Somebody help me!" Like it just goes. And oh, I've always loved that shot. It's just yeah, yeah it's really like. And I oh, and but. The bit before that that I always forget until I actually rewatch it. He he's just muttering, "It didn't bite you. It didn't bite you." And I'm just like, "Oh, baby, it's just you know, you he has no idea how much harder it's going to be to keep him safe from now on." <laughs> this is <laughs> like, just the beginning, Ronan. This is nothing. <laughs> God. So the next scene that we have is. The one where Merlin goes to Gaia's Pedia Magical Edition and is disappointed. Um, I just have this. Sorry, I just need to yeah. like imagine this like um, on a on a Windows computer when there's an error with like file not found and you have this little this little noise is jump. This is like basically what 
I imagine in this scene just yeah. Merlin trying to fig to help and guys just coming up with doom 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 yeah, file exactly. not found. <laughs> exactly. Um yeah. but I love like, you know, before the really emotional impact of this scene hits, I love the uh moment where he's like the king will be here any moment. It's like, what are you doing? We're getting that book out. Yeah, but I love that that we actually see Merlin trying out some some spells for a change. Like, I mean, none of them work, but Merlin is at least doing stuff with his magic, like using his magic to whirl through the book, finding pages that might be relevant to what he's looking for. Like, this is an amazing. Like, Merlin is being Google in this. He's just searching, quick searching. All the keywords. That's yeah, amazing. exactly. He never does this again. Yeah, which could have been really useful for all those times when he was trying to look for stuff in the book because he had a deadline yeah. and instead just like was up all night. Yeah, and also, does this work on any book or just on a book of spells? Like, it would have been so useful. Exactly. Uh, people need to make more use of that in, in fanfic as well, like especially modern magical AUs where Merlin is like a student and he needs to write stuff like this would make studying so much easier or research at the very least um so this is uh so I actually was mistaken earlier on when I said that the the pace kind of slows down a bit when Merlin gets to the aisle I would say this is actually the moment yeah we've had like kind of dun 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 scenes and then oh my god just Uther. hearing Uther running and saying, where's my son? Oh, oh my... he is so upset. He's so, like, he's like, fuck, I was right. <laughs> and then then he picks him up and carries him back to his room no. by himself. But there's a moment, like, just before he actually lifts him off of the bench where he kind of straightens his face so that he can actually go out in public looking okay. And it's just like... And then that haunting music and the slow mo, and, and then, how he falls to his knees because yes. it it just because and then it takes four nights to actually carry Arthur back because Arthur is a grown ass man and he's wearing chainmail, but Uther carried him this far by himself like he's a baby because yeah. that is what and I'm just. And like fact... he's a little boy who scraped his knees, but no, he was bitten by the questing beast and he's gonna die. Oh, this scene has always been one of my favorite scenes. It's so good. It's so good. And the fact that, like, as Arthur's carried away, Uther, like, can't look and he's just crying, like, in public. It's so good. Yeah. <laughs> and. I'm just so happy that we get these moments for him because as an Uther stan, I'm just like, yes, he has a heart. <laughs> He's a very loving person. Um, and Gaius is at his side and we have Morgana looking out through the window. And, you know, I guess this is a good time to mention that where is Morgana in this episode? Seriously, where is Morgana in this episode? I mean, I there is, um, there is one with Morgana coming yeah, up later on yeah, yeah later on but like yeah. morgana is very not present in this episode she she's has like here, three but scenes. she's doing nothing yeah like she's just and she's not really looking i mean i guess she's really stressed out by her vision and stuff but like you know where's the morgana that you know was uh confronting sophia because she you know threatened that if she ever hurts arthur she'll come after her and you know arthur's gonna die and she's just kind of like not upset about that like at all yeah 
I don't think so. Like, again, I'm just... Where's Where's the Morgana from, what was it, Valiant, who helps Arthur into his armor to to have a chat with him and be like, please be careful out there? Like, where right. is that Morgana in this episode where Arthur is dying? It's just... There or are even just a scene of her being upset. I would yeah, have. Yeah, there are been fine there with. are other scenes in this episode that make no sense for like reactions from characters. But Morgana, Morgana's characterization in this episode makes the least sense to me. Yeah. So the next one we have is the one with the dragon. Yeah. Um. And and he goes. The dragon goes. You don't know how to heal him. Well, gee, thanks for stating the obvious, Legolas. It's just. <laughs> Um, this scene, uh, just the world building in this fucking show. It's like, so he says, uh, Merlin says the, the old religion died out centuries ago and the dragon gets very defensive. And he says that the old religion, you know, will live long past the time of men. And it's, you know, what binds us all together. And what I find very weird about this scene is that he is basically like he's saying merlin is a creature of the old religion merlin even though he like he knows the old religion isn't dead so a i don't know why he's saying that the old religion died out because it it didn't and he knows that it didn't but also what is the difference then between nimue and merlin that merlin is technically a creature of the old religion the dragon is a creature of the old religion he says it later on in the second scene and why then can't Merlin heal Arthur? Why does it have to be Nimue? What is the difference between them if they both come from the same thing? I'm very confused by what kind of lore they're trying to feed me here because it's yes, like well, because Nimue, because Nimue is a priestess of the old religion. She's basically the Pope for some reason. Okay. So and that's why she gets to bargain or like make the old religion do what she wants like Merlin still has to abide by by the rules or whatever but Nimue gets to set herself above the rules as long as there is like a balance I don't know I'm, like, I'm, just, I'm grasping at straws obviously but the way that he explains it makes no sense because he literally says the questing beast uh comes from the old religion so you therefore must use the power of the old religion to heal him but by that definition, Merlin could heal him on his own because not only does his power come from the old religion, but it's the most powerful magic that there has ever been, apparently. So why can't he do anything about it? And if Because that's they the wanted case, to induce, introduce the cup of life and Merlin didn't have that. <laughs> he didn't unlock that level yet. Yeah, exactly. Oh, That's God. an achievement and, he doesn't have yet. And it's just like, again, this dialogue makes no sense because Merlin is like, the old religion died out centuries ago, and yet literally he's just killed a creature of the old religion that he knows is of the old religion because Gaius told him it was. So why are you saying these things? <laughs> I don't understand. No. They just... And also it's, it's the scene where... The dragon says, the young Pendragon must live no matter what the cost. And it's just, it's one of, I feel like this is what, this is one of these instances where 
the dragon is just brainwashing Merlin into basically giving up his own life. Like this is this is maybe not what push. What actually I would say that is probably what pushes Merlin to like pledging his own life in exchange for Arthur's. Like I feel like he would have done it before as well, but just hearing it from the dragon once more is just what confirms it from Merlin that that he must die so Arthur can live because that's the price. I mean, we had to be fair, like he's been completely I mean, by Labyrinth of Gedref, he's been there to like like yeah, he, like, but, like, he, like he would have drunk that that yeah, poison. But just yeah, but it that's just what the what a dragon what a dragon does. It's just reminding Merlin over and over again you it's your destiny to protect Arthur and you must do it at all costs because if Arthur dies then your life is worthless basically yeah but at the same time I don't really understand because if because if Arthur lives and Merlin dies and who's going to protect him after Merlin's gone like he doesn't think yeah. about that you know no, he do- that's Listen, never addressed Merlin, Merlin is a baby he doesn't know anything <laughs> No, I mean, like, from the dragon's point of view, because surely he must know that that's not the end. Like, if, say, that that is what happened and he just, they switched lives. Like, you know, who's going to protect him? I mean, the thing is that the dragon doesn't outright say that Merlin is the one who has to die. He just lets Merlin assume that. He just, he doesn't say it. He lets Merlin assume that because the dragon knows that it's not going to be Merlin's life that is going to be taken for Arthur. That's true. So... The dragon just lets Merlin assume what he wants. Yeah. Because if the dragon had said, well, your mother is going to die, or someone else you hold dear, then Merlin would have wavered more. Because giving his own life, that's fine. Because in Merlin's in Merlin's point of view, he's reached a, a point where he's like, well, my own life is worthless compared to Arthur's. But someone else's life, like the life of someone he holds dear, that's a whole yeah. other... That's a whole other thing. Harder, yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, yeah. So Merlin takes his advice on board and he goes up to see Gaius. Um, and tells him. And, yeah. Yeah, and uh, tells him. And I love Gaius's reaction as soon as he says the words, the Isle of the Blessed. Um, just, oh, again, there's so much history here. <laughs> Why didn't we get more of this? Um, you know, we obviously find out much later on that actually guys has been to the isle of the blessed but you know in this moment we obviously know there's a lot that he's not telling merlin and um we don't know that that's nimway wait, uh, waiting for him and uh yeah. unless you've seen the promo in which case you know that that's nimway <laughs> waiting for him yeah um i like that like i'm yeah so usually i hate when guys doesn't tell merlin things because the reason he usually doesn't tell merlin things is because he assumes that merlin if he doesn't tell Merlin, Merlin won't do the thing, and Merlin will understand why he shouldn't do the thing, even though Gaius doesn't tell him why he shouldn't do the thing. But in this instance, Gaius keeps secrets from Merlin to protect him. Like, to me, it feels different to when he usually does this. This time, it feels more protective of Merlin than the other times when Gaius kept things from Merlin. Yeah. I completely can see that. And you can see it on his face, you know, like he's really scared. Um, and Merlin is just really determined and everything about this scene is just so well acted. And Merlin's kind of, you know, 
whatever the price is, I will pay it gladly. And I'm actually surprised guys didn't do more to stop him, you know, because I think he kind of knows what's I mean, coming. They, they had to keep that for the for the second half of the episode, I guess. So then the next scene is the first one with sweaty naked author. And this scene, like, apart from providing eye candy, is completely useless. Because all it does is you have this dramatic, slowly spinning bird's view shot of Arthur lying in bed, slowly dying, and there's dramatic music to emphasize that Arthur is in danger. And that's all it is. <laughs> and I'm just... Basically. I'm just, like, apart from... Like I said, apart from the eye candy, what's the point of the scene? Because we already know Arthur is in danger. We know the situation is dire. Everyone has been talking about exactly that for like 10 minutes. Why is this shot necessary? It isn't. Well, I mean, I guess it kind of adds extra weight and it's kind of... Well, I mean, it's a good... Um, they have more... Uh, they have, it's a good segue. Yeah, but they have more scenes of like Arthur slowly dying in his bed later on they didn't really need this one that's true but i think it probably provides like a good palate cleanser like between that merlin guy is seen in the next one rather than just like a straight cut yeah. you know it's like a good dramatic shot to end merlin's dramatic you know i will pay okay, the price <laughs> kind of thing but i mean yeah i can see why yeah. it seems a little pointless compared to all the other times as yeah. well do you actually have something about the rabbit's foot scene i just thought it was really adorable gaius is kind of little like you know yeah he doesn't normally get that flustered you know and he's just yeah. like you know it's... i don't believe in superstition i don't know why i gave it to you and it's like, but it's oh, like no i want it <laughs> yeah yes. i just i like the 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 parental dynamic in this one it's it's cute yeah oh bless them yeah so then we have the next one with sweaty naked author this time with some added unconscious pain where like Arthur is like groaning in his sleep because apparently he's in pain. And then his pain is immediately soothed when his daddy caresses his cheek. No, it's just too much <laughs> for me to handle. I, I do love seeing Uther being emotional here. Like in, in this entire episode, I like Uther, like seeing Uther being emotional over his son. And it's just um like... Any person who says that Uther doesn't love Arthur, just show them this episode and be like, no, he does. He actually, exactly. he's crap at showing it, which is where Arthur gets it, like his emotional constipation from, but Uther cares. That's the thing. He really does. And it's just one of those things where it's like, you know, there's nothing like the touch of a parent, you know, like kind of that immediately soothes him. And I'm just like, oh my God, it's just so sweet. And it made me think of like, you know, maybe Uther used to do this when he was young and, you know, sick or, and Arthur never knew, you know? Yeah. Like he'd just kind of come into his room and sit with him, like while he'd be sleeping. And it's just like a nice thought. Yeah. So then we have the one with the directions voiceover, which is a montage of Merlin traveling to the Isle of the Blessed with literally a voiceover of, the dragon explaining the route which he did like two minutes ago in another scene so it's, it's a, yeah it's kind of a pointless montage it's, to be yeah quite like my only note is like lol <laughs> like what is this is this is more pointless 
than the sweaty naked author bird's view spinning dra dramatic music scene. It's just like you could have had what you could have done is with this scene is like Merlin traveling while you have voiceovers of like Uther talking to his son for example, yeah. that would have made more sense where you have like the urgency of Arthur dying in the background while Merlin is traveling all this way to the Isle of the Blessed. Like that would have made sense. But just watching Merlin travel while we have the voiceover of the directions, it's just <laughs> so useless. Okay, so then the next one is the one with the shoehorned Arwen scene. And this is the scene that I that I most remember from the first time I watched this episode because my friend and I were watching it and she was there Ugh, and now we have this unnecessary shipping scene because apparently we need to have it to explain why they end up together at some point <laughs> and that stuck with me because that's literally what it is there is no reason for for Gwen to be there like I have this I have this note on another scene with them it's just yeah, the only thing that why I... Why was this not Morgana in this yes, scene? Yes, exactly. Why is it not Morgana in this scene? Why is it Gwen in this scene? And, I mean... Also, I noticed... Like, this is the third time we see Arthur in his bed, slowly dying, without a shirt on. But now, he's not sweaty anymore because he can't be gross in front of his supposed love interest of the future. It's just... Ah! Um, I have a couple of notes for this scene. I mean, yeah, first of all, this should have been Morgana. Yes. It makes a lot more sense for Morgana to have the line, the man I've seen inside you, Arthur, because she actually does see him a lot on a regular basis. Yes. Whereas Gwen does not. In fact, they have had one scene together up until this point where they have been alone. And had they even had more, like, two or three scenes before this episode i might have actually been like all right we've had a bit of build up and it's a nice shippy moment to end it on but as it stands that's not yeah. the case like the season this uh i think i have this note somewhere later on but the season starts with gwen going off as one of these rough tough save the world kind of men which and, and and also complimenting Merlin on standing up to Arthur being a bully. And I'm just like, that's how Gwen sees Arthur. That's how she's seen Arthur for the majority before the show started. Like, this is, this is the image she has of Arthur. And now at the end, we're supposed to believe that she's always seen Arthur to be this good person? No, I think we're supposed to believe, I guess, sometime after Moment of Truth, but there hasn't been enough scenes between Moment of yeah. Truth and Lamort de Arthur for us to actually see that progression. And Morgana, on the other hand, you know, has actually been around. Like, they've yeah. had so many scenes together, and it would have it would have made more sense for me personally. Um, but also, what is she doing with that flannel? She's taken the flannel off of Arthur's forehead where it was nicely cooling his fever to dab his forehead, which is not going to cool his fever, and then to randomly just poke him in the collarbones. <laughs> just like, dab, dab, dab. Yeah. As in, also, like, what, is, is that the one where she actually takes his hand? Yeah. Oh, God. And I'm just like, that's not nursing. Um just so you know 
that's not how you nurse someone back to health and then i'm pretty sure once she's finished with the dabbing she actually just puts the flannel down so he's now flannelless for the rest of the scene in which case his fever is slowly rising up and up and up and up and by the end of the scene he's dead because he has a fever that has reached astronomical levels well, but he's not sweaty anymore so clearly he has no fever anymore because that would be gross and you can't be gross in front of your supposed love interest I'm not bitter. <laughs> yeah, I just wish we had more of a reason for Gwen to care at this point. I think yeah. it's just not really very clear why, yeah, why she feels the need to kind of feel so invested in in him. And it would have made more sense for Morgana. So yeah. there you go. That's the way I feel about that. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, the next one is the one with the vigil, where all the citizens of Camelot apparently loiter around the castle. I like it. Really, I find it. I find it super cheesy, and I mean, might I might just be jaded, but I find it super cheesy and unnecessary. Honestly, I mean, obviously, it's also to kind of really emphasize the the you know this is some serious shit that he's in right now it's not just the usual kind of you know oh it's a scratch it's a scratch you know um i think that but obviously it it, it kind of leads then into the the uther and gaius moment which is just oh, oh i love this i i have this one titled the one with gaius comforting his husband uh king yeah and, and there's this there's this bit of dialogue where um uh uther goes he will not recover and gaius says not without a miracle to which Uther replies I don't believe in miracles and this breaks my heart because you can tell from the way Uther says it and the way he looks that he wishes he did believe in miracles he wishes he could believe that Arthur will survive which is ironic because he also didn't believe that the questing beast is what Gaius said it was and yet here we are (laughs) But yeah, he can't he can't believe in miracles. He can't because believing in miracles would be like believing in magic and Arthur uh, Uther doesn't doesn't want magic, doesn't believe in miracles, but he like in this moment to save his son, he desperately wishes he could believe in it. Yeah, it's Oh gosh. Um this line just gets me every single time. I just I really feel for this character. I really really do. I just I wish that he had a different life. You know, I think that he could have done a lot of good had Igraine not died. Yeah. All right. Then there is the one where Merlin reaches the Isle. And I'm I'm just still confused how much time that actually took. Like, I'm supposed... I'm, I'm assuming we're supposed to think it's been a couple of days at least. Because we had the we had a traveling montage with the voiceover. <laughs> he wouldn't do that if it was a short journey. Um, but yeah, how long did it actually take? I think it was just overnight, probably. Because he looks like he's arriving there in the morning or like at dawn or something like that. Um, and obviously we've just had a scene That's during the night, night when... Yeah. Uh, I guess. So... Anyway... I like the mist over the lake because mists of Avalon and all of that. So I I like that that's in there while he like goes in the boat 
to the actual it's aisle. It's really atmospheric. Yeah. I'm just curious to what happens if you're a non-magic user and you want to visit the Isle of the Blessed. And well, then obviously the boat won't move because there are no oars in it and Merlin just compelled it with his mind. And if you if you don't have magic, then the boat just won't move. So you can't go and visit the priestess exactly. if you don't have any magic. Exactly. <laughs> that seems fair. Um, this set is absolutely gorgeous it's perfect for this it creeps me out every time I see it and the real life set like from what I've seen in pictures just looks so I mean it's still quite creepy but it's they've made it look so much creepier on screen and I really really like where they filmed this it's gorgeous yeah Um, also what is Nimoy's dress what the fuck like is this is this required of priestesses of the old religion that their that their dresses have to make be made up of like strips or like rags and strips of fabric? Like Nimue's dress is like the 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 uh the rattiest version. Mogos actually has a nice dress, but it's all still very like strip like made of strips of fabric with like just straps everywhere I feel like and then we all know what Morgana is wearing in season 4 and 5 and I'm just is this like is this a base requirement to be a priestess of the old religion you have to dress like that I mean I think it's probably one of those things where you really that's what you expect them to look like so that's how they've styled them I mean I wouldn't have expected anything else, to be quite honest with you. Just that kind of outfit and just like a cloak. You're sorted. I, I, would, have, I would have expected a proper dress, honestly, or just, I don't know, something something different. This is just, this is somewhere halfway between I didn't have any money for clothes and also I'm a stripper. Like, what I would have expected probably is something much simpler. I probably would have... Yeah, now that I think about it, I probably would have expected something like nuns' robes, because this is like the equivalent yeah. to you know what nuns are in Christianity is what the priestesses of the old religion are probably, you know. So I would have expected them to be something similar to that, but that's just me. But don't forget that like, and it's been a while since I've read Mists of Avalon, and I don't know that much about paganism in general, but in that like book especially like the whole point of the difference between paganism and christianity is like paganism is kind of like you know we celebrate life and fertility and you know that kind of thing whereas you guys celebrate death and bad things you know so we'll have this big festival of like fertility and you know um mating and all this kind of stuff and you guys are just over there like you know fasting and being boring and stuff like that so i feel like even if it is a bit sexy it kind of makes sense for that mentality like that kind of religion where it's sort of like yeah this is this is the kind of uh lifestyle we promote of like you know free free living sort of thing if that makes sense i don't know um i really 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 like this scene um the uh the music in this scene is really really creepy as well which just helps to creep out the whole place even more um but there are a couple of things i mean again i don't want to get too much into her as a character but i kind of have to mention it because it's a part of the scene but i just wish i understood her motivations because i feel as 
though I don't know why she's tried to trick him here and I don't understand like so she has a line here where she says um uh, so he mentions how he tried to kill her and then she says before I understood your importance and I'm just a bit like hmm like a how do you understand his importance like who told you we didn't see that happen you just kind of randomly understood that at some point in the show and b why why now like why have you figured this out now and why are you so invested in trying to keep both Merlin and Arthur alive and why do you even care like I just have no answers to any of these questions. I have no answers to why she she reminds me a bit of like um sort of like a Loki type character, like where her motives are never really clear and I don't understand who she's uh kind of allied with, like and I don't understand what her own like what she wants for herself as a person and that's my only kind of gripe and this scene just illustrates that because she basically i mean we kind of there's more to discuss in the second scene that we have with her when um merlin comes back but uh yeah i just don't really get why she's trying to trick him in this scene do you maybe have anything to explain i mean it doesn't make sense overall because in this scene she repeats that arthur wasn't supposed to die at her hands and yet she's the one who left him to die in that cave when he was getting the Mortius flower to save Merlin. And I'm just, there are just too many contradictions here with, with Nimue. Exactly. I will say, though, that the cut that they do, uh, so you have the camera behind uh, Nimue and she extends her hand uh, to her right and then we jump cut immediately to uh, where the camera is facing her and she uh, has the cup in her hand. Obviously, someone has given her the cup and they've then edited it, but I love the way that it looks. It, it, yeah. Even though it, it, it it's such a simple it's, cut. It's such a cheap she, trick, honestly, but it works. It does. It and And this is why I always... I'm such an advocate for the good old fashioned methods because if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And honestly, editing is your best friend oftentimes. And this is a really, really cheap way of doing something like that. But it works because as an audience member, you're like, oh, and and unless you're watching it for a fiftieth time, yeah. Because we've had shots of like them standing next to this altar thing where you could see that there is nothing on it. So obviously, when it appears. She must have gotten it with magic out of thin air somewhere, you know. Exactly. So also, she is hella smart because she only made it rain above Merlin, not herself. Oh yeah. It's like Merlin is dripping wet at the end of it, and she's just still there, hair exactly like it was before. She's not wet in any way. It was just Merlin who got rained on. Yeah. So overall, just a very confusing scene, but the tension is really great. I prefer the second scene that they have together, and we'll talk about that when we get there. But um, yeah, overall. It's fine. I mean, do you feel as though when you watch this scene, you know that it's not going to turn out the way he thinks? Or what do we think? Uh, again, this is this is difficult to gauge because, like, even when I first watched it, I knew he wasn't going to die either. Yeah. So, and I don't think I watched a preview because my friend was very, like, I watched it with, with her for the first time and uh, she had already seen it. So she was very uh, particular about not letting me see the preview because she was like, that's just going to spoil the entire thing for you, which is true. 
don't watch the previews. It will spoil. It will spoil a lot already. But anyway, I I still I knew Merlin wasn't going to die. Um, and I think I maybe sort of expected it not to go the way that he expected it to go. Yeah. Um, but I don't know what exactly I expected. Yeah, and she's so good at manipulating him in this scene because all you know, all he cares about is saving Arthur and making sure that he's gonna give his life and da 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 da. And you know, she says the right things to get him to believe that he's gonna get his way. And actually, when you break down the dialogue, she doesn't actually say anything. <laughs> it's all yeah, very very no, clever. No, she doesn't give him any information. No. Although, uh, just bringing back what you said about the preview, I think that uh, Vicky was talking about this on Twitter quite a while ago now, but I remember mentioning it because obviously I don't really watch the previews that often anymore because um, they're not, uh, I don't, I think. Yeah, I don't think I used to like wait for the previews once I was watching them on DVD. But the preview for this, and Merlin has done this on a couple of occasions, they really make you believe that Arthur has died in this episode. Um, and it's obviously Gaius that dies. And like, it's just so clever how they've edited it. And when you're, you know, watching it and you're not used to that kind of trickery, you probably think, damn, what's going <laughs> on? Because it ends with, you know, you should not have killed my friend. And yeah, it's really the, clever. Yeah, yeah. So I wouldn't have spoiled anything. But you probably would have been like, what? <laughs> yeah, okay, fair enough, fair enough. Um, so the next scene we have is the one where Gaius still doesn't want Merlin to die. And uh, my only note for this scene is that Gaius always knows. <laughs> yeah. He always knows everything. Yeah. My note is that at the end of the scene, when Merlin, like Merlin gives him the the little flask with the water from the Isle of the Blessed and Merlin has explained everything like just give this to Arthur and then he will live. I made a deal with Nimue, blah, blah, blah. And Gaius is so suspicious and I like that. Like, I bet he also hates having to make that choice now because Merlin has given him the flask. Merlin trusts him to give this water to Arthur but Gaius knows that Merlin pledged his own life because that's who Merlin is. And then after Merlin has run out to head to Arthur's room, Gaius just stands there and you can see the wheels turning in his head. He considers for just a moment to just empty the flask and let Arthur die so that Merlin can live. But then, of course, he realizes that this would devastate Uther and Merlin would also be devastated and all of Camelot would be devastated. And Gaius just isn't sure he could survive having disappointed and betrayed two people, the two people he values the most, even if one of them is most likely going to die if he does this. Mm. The alternative would still be Merlin hating him probably forever. So Gaius possibly thinks better he dies loving me than he continues to live to resent me for all eternity. Oh, God. Oh, gosh, Gaius. <laughs> yeah. So then the next one is the one where Uther is willingly gullible. And I love this. Like, it's it's a scene in Arthur's chambers with uh, Gaius administering the the water from the flask. And then only once Gaius steps aside, you see Merlin actually holding Arthur's head. He's holding his, his head! <laughs> and then Uther steps in and he's like, what are you doing? He's like, at first he's like, sort of suspicious. And then Gaius comes up with a bullshit explanation for like an experimental treatment, blah, blah. And Uther is so vulnerable like, 
like we see this anytime one of his kids is is near death like we have this in in season two with morgana when she fell down the steps as well he's like so vulnerable and 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 sort of scared and hopeful and then here he just wants his son to be better and he doesn't even question what the cure really is like i'm sure he knows guys is just bullshitting him he just wants guys to give him any explanation that isn't outright saying we used magic. I can definitely see that as a possibility. I just don't know if the Anthony's acting choices make me believe that that's what he's thinking. I think that it's more likely, in my opinion, that he's just so relieved that there's a cure that he's he's. Pro- I don't even think he's thinking about what's in that flask. I think he's just focused on Arthur and maybe afterwards he obviously we don't see that on screen um but maybe afterwards he has a thought like once arthur's woken up um but uh you know i don't know i just feel like he's like you said he's just kind of disorientated and not really taking it in I, i like i don't know if that's kind of what he's what he's thinking but obviously like it's perfectly possible because like you said he has the same kind of moment with morgana in the crystal cave but um yeah, he's just at the end of the day, he just wants his baby to live. And yeah. it's just so, 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 so sweet. Like, I think I have a note here that says, like, has the poor guy even slept at all? Like, I mean, he, he we see him waking up yeah, well, just when Arthur wakes up. Falling asleep, <laughs> so, like, well, yeah. just while sitting there. Um, yeah. But what makes me laugh about this scene is when he comes and he goes, what are you doing, physician? And I'm like, since when have you ever called him that? Like, like especially like, why, why that? Yeah, that that had me, that had me going, that had me have a double take as well because it's like, what? <laughs> you usually only call him that when you're angry with him. Yeah, exactly. But even then, I'm always a bit like, you don't. Uh, I don't understand. Yeah. But yes, Merlin holding Arthur's head is a lot like it it's something i'm highly interested in it's just very 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 cute um but it's very funny that like merlin gives caius the flask saying hurry hurry go and give this to other and then he just comes with him anyway (laughs) so why couldn't he take the flask to arthur i don't well probably because they needed this whole uh plausible deniability thing where like Gaius was the one to uh, give Arthur the cure or whatever. I don't know. Okay, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So the next one is the one with Morgana's cryptic prophecy, and I have two notes for this scene. The first one is more frivolous, which is just. I was looking at that corridor that guys run and enter once they leave Arthur's room, and going back to, like, flashing back to Pierrefonds, there is no room there where they're coming from. There's also no room there, like, leading on from season one. His room, like, the corridor coming out of Arthur's room is not that corridor. Yeah. Lead, like, after season one. And then, uh, I mean, I'm I'm okay with, with, like, if we're supposed to believe that there's a room there, I'm okay with that. It, it also means that this would be closer to the stairs that go up to Morgana's room. Because they're just around the corner now. I see. But, uh, yeah, it's just once, once you've been to <laughs> The Pierre questing just... beast arises again. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, my serious note for this for this scene is, um, like, Morgana steps out of a, of a, of a niche and, and sort of grabs Merlin and, and makes a 
like a comment about like more bad things are about to happen or I don't I don't remember exactly what she says. And then Merlin's reaction just confuses me because like she takes his hand and begs him to listen to her with like with like everything in her demeanor and her facial expression. She just begs him to listen to her and he just pulls his hand away. Like the camera even focuses on it and plays a sharp tune to emphasize that he's being deliberate here, that he's deliberately taking his hand away from her. And the the way he looks at her with, like, anger in his face, I'm just, why is he like this? It's obvious. Because, like, she, she, he's literally just watched her plan Uther's death the episode before. Yes, but he he has no... I mean, yes, I, I, I figure that's probably the reason, but he was willing to let it happen until Gwen was like, I don't want that. He doesn't have the moral high ground here. And he was also the one who watched her save Uther in the end. For me, I really liked it because I thought, and, you know, let's just take season two out of it. Imagine that you're watching it for the first time. I think that it's a really fantastic interaction between them to build upon what is going to become an antagonistic relationship. And of course, what they did in season two doesn't really support that because he's trying to come to her defense. But at the time of writing this episode, I can really see. And, you know, of course, no one believes that they have the moral low ground compared to anyone else. You know, of course, Merlin doesn't see it that way. He sees it in the way of, yeah, okay, she might have saved his life, like, in the end. But it's like, I just, and also, I don't, no, hang on, I don't think he saw her saving his life. Because. Okay, maybe he didn't. But still, I. I just, I don't know. I think that. It, I mean, obviously, we'd, we're not used to continuity in Merlin, so it's obviously a little bit strange. But I think that it's it's a cool little taste of things to come for them. Um, I don't know. I like. I know that it obviously seems a bit strange, considering that the episode before it ended on quite a high note. But I don't know. Like, if you think about this, is their first interaction since then? I feel like. I don't know. It kind of makes sense to me. I just, it just doesn't make sense for what happened going forward. I don't know. That's kind of where I stand with this scene, but I think it's pretty cool. And if they'd have actually built on this, it would have been really, really good. I don't know, but obviously they didn't do that. And this is like the only time she gets to do anything. And it's to like, I don't know. Yeah. Give Morgana more stuff to do in this episode, please. Seriously. Alright, then we have the one in which Arthur wakes up. And I'm just... Gaius is lurking in the background. And what was the point of us watching Gaius leave Arthur's chambers if the next scene just shows him being back in it? Well, it's like, much later at night, so he wouldn't have maybe, like... Because okay. he said he needs rest, and then Uther says, I'll stay with him. So I okay. guess he just went... Yeah. And then like... Uther just fell asleep because Uther apparently didn't need any rest. <laughs> oh, my baby! <laughs> Um, yeah. And yeah, that's just my kind of. I mean, Arthur's looking adorable as he wakes up, and Uther's just he's like so con- he's so surprised and confused that his dad is by his side. I'm just like Arthur, no, baby, please, he loves you. <laughs> just oh my god! And then, like, okay, so the scene that follows it, like where, like, or or the continuation of like what the uh, what yeah. So it's gonna sound ridiculous, but every time I've watched this scene, 
Merlin pacing back and forth and guys walking into the room and take the dialogue out of the scene completely and guys says something and Merlin looks ecstatic like he looks expectantly and then clutches his hair and it always has made me think of like a dad in a waiting room while his wife is giving birth <laughs> like got like the doctor coming in and saying it's a boy you can come in now <laughs> And every time I've seen it, like with him clutching his hair and like being happy, it's just looked like that. And obviously guys being a physician as well. And I'm just like, yay, they had a baby. (laughs) So now let me make you sad because Merlin is all happy and ecstatic that Arthur is fine. And then Gaius gives him the stare and Merlin goes all solemn and sad because he knows he'll have to die now. It's just beautiful little piece of exchange with no yeah words because like yeah exactly no words he he turns around and before Gaius even looks at because so um uh, so to apologies I always seem to bring up this movie but there is a reason um so in Titanic there's a moment when they're uh, trying to get onto the door where uh they try to get on it both at the same time and then they can't and there's a bit where he just goes like, stay on, stay on. And then the camera is just on a close up on his face. And he has a moment where he's kind of nodding to himself because he realizes that this means he's going to die. And then he just moves around. And it reminded me so much of Merlin's face in this scene. Like when he turns around and guys can't see his face, he's just kind of nodding to himself, just kind of nodding. And as if like, okay, that's done. Like he's safe now. And then it hits him. Like this means I'm going to die. And then, like he said, he sits down, turns around Gaius is looking at the floor and he just looks up at Merlin like from under his eyes and just stares at him and Merlin kind of like yeah and it's just oh my god (laughs) it's so good can see oh my god these actors are so damn good honestly I can't I can't with them but uh yeah I'm so glad that you brought that up because that little exchange is just pains me oh yeah the next one is the one in which Gwen is miraculously Arthur's maid now. Yeah, she's been promoted, apparently. Um, so Arthur is awake and in charge of his own dignity again, which means he's put a shirt back on. <laughs> much to my chagrin. Um, seriously, though, I don't mind um, the Arwen shippers. I want to say this, like, ship what you want. But these scenes just make no sense and are so obviously shoehorned in. It is painful to watch like Gwen has absolutely no business bringing fresh sheets or whatever it is that she's carrying to Arthur's chambers she's Morgana's maid yes she is Morgana's maid Merlin is Arthur's servant and even if that were a task for someone else it wouldn't be Gwen's task because she's as high up as Merlin in the servant hierarchy like, if she were to do this for anyone, it would be for Morgana, but not for Arthur, for fuck's sake. And she definitely, if she was lower down or what have you, she would not be bringing fresh sheets in while the king is present and the prince and just not remotely acknowledging their presence or bowing or acknowledging them or even being in the same room as Arthur unsupervised because she's a woman. This would never... Yeah. Just everything about so... this. Um, But Arthur is looking extremely adorable when you have that okay. like just that shot of him in the bed just like he he looks like he's just smoked a joint <laughs> he looks so yeah. chilled out <laughs> who knows what was in that water yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and then yeah. he says and then there's a there's a little piece of dialogue where he's like something about the man i am inside and gwen is nope 
I never said that. Yeah. Which is true. She never said that. She said the men I've seen inside you, which is different. <laughs> Not really. It's still about whatever soul he has, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but I actually. <laughs> but, yeah. but there's some dialogue between Uther and Arthur before that that I really love, where, he, you know. Uther's already kind of like, I thought we'd lost you, you know, <laughs> like kind of tapping him on the shoulder and like, I've not been crying for days at all. <laughs> and then Arthur's just like, don't worry, father, I'm not going to die. And I'm like, you sound awfully confident all of a sudden. <laughs> you knew you weren't going to die, did you? <laughs> How could you possibly know that? I, I walked it off all on my own. And then Uther has this really lovely line of, like, on your long journey to become king, you'll need a guardian angel. And then, obviously, the f- scene following, we have Merlin just waiting for the inevitable. And it's just, oh, my God, just thinking of Merlin as a guardian angel just is kind of... Okay, but honestly, Uther doesn't like magic, doesn't believe in miracles, but guardian angels are okay? <laughs> <laughs> Let's... Explain this to me, Uther, please, <laughs> with small words, because apparently I'm not getting it. <laughs> oh my uh, god, Uther. Okay. Anyway. Uh, but yeah, I I did want to say, um, I will say that I, with the Arwen scene, I really kind of do like Arthur kind of like... Um, like uh like trying to trying to irritate her you know like oh what did you say yeah. what did you say like that like that is kind of cool and and it's very in character for him although the one thing i will say is that obviously because in the previous scene he was asleep so it was like her like kind of feelings and up until now they've had their chat in the moment of truth in which he's realized that she was right and he's acknowledged that she was right and then they've had a scene in which she gives, uh, he acknowledges that she can stay in her house. And then this scene. And based off of this interaction here, Arthur is all of a sudden, like, in the curse of Cornelius Segan, he's, like, kind of smitten and stumbling over his words in front of her. I- I'm just a... Mm. 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 <laughs> That's how I feel about that. <laughs> I'm just a bit like yeah, because yeah, he doesn't he doesn't seem to this interaction to me seems more like yeah, like I completely buy in like based off of this scene, I completely could buy into the fact that Gwen has a crush on Arthur. I don't really buy into the opposite. Yeah. He seems like the kind like in this scene, he seems almost like he's that you know like the posh like gorgeous boy that knows the girl has a crush on him so he's like yeah. come on come on but actually he's just kind of enjoying it and doesn't feel anything back like that's the impression i get here yeah. he's like come on come on like and then she runs off flustered and he's happy that he's like flustered her and that's it and i don't really feel any but then like literally in the next episode he's the one that's flustered and i'm like why is the power of boobs that strong apparently i mean they dolled her up yeah quite a bit Yes, uh, but yeah, so just please, if anyone has any explain, like any headcanons about how this works. Please. I mean, they pro. I mean, I'm sure the headcanons are like things that happen between season one and two with them interacting more, but we don't see that in canon. I would actually like to like hear about them because I'm curious as to how people that actually ship this pairing kind of explain, explain this? these sorts of interactions and how because like for example. You know, I ship Lancelot and Gwen, and they have very few scenes, but the scenes they do have, like, 
this is the thing like i've never been an advocate of like you need to have loads of scenes in order for me to ship something but the scenes that you do have need to make sense and their scenes for me make sense because they're immediately attracted to each other and i buy into the fact that they're both crushing on each other whereas here it just never really there was no progression so i don't really know and it felt to me like with season two it just like with a lot of other things bear in mind not just oh and like this happened with a lot of other uh themes and stuff but they just went okay we're going to just start from zero and then once the future queen was kind of like we're just going to start again <laughs> like we're going to forget season one and we're just going to start again because yeah it doesn't really follow through but i would love to hear your thoughts guys so actually i am genuinely asking you to like tell me what you think about this because it just seems a bit off for me but oh well so then we have the one with the stormy night in which the useless guards of camelot tm are at work because someone enters the courtyard in the middle of the night and first of all they're okay with that and second of all, the only thing that worries one of them for a second is when they see uh, a boil-covered hand, and even then they don't think to stop them, even though this person could reasonably, like, they could conclude that this person is bringing a great plague to the castle. Like, <laughs> what's what's the thought process here? And it's um, scary. This scene is very scary. I really yeah. like it. And yeah. there's. There's also in this in this night scene. There's also another shot of Morgana waking up, screaming from a nightmare, from a nightmare. And I have found five pounds that say that they shot that the shot that they used for this scene is just an alternate shot of the first time we saw her waking up from a nightmare because she's wearing the exact same thing. Take and, a shot. I mean, I mean, of course she gets to wear the same thing to bed. Like I don't change every night into something new for bed. Uh, but like it's just the way it is i'm just like this is the exact same thing just two nights later <laughs> and then the we have the morning scene and yeah i think we both agree that like this whole transition from day to uh from night to day is beautiful it's so well yeah. done i, I love it. i really like the aesthetic of the shot when he wakes up in the morning with like the sun shining on his open palm with the rabbit's foot in it and then the what follows is like Guy is trying to shield Merlin from the sight of his mother on the floor, and like I like that part with like Guy is like no Merlin don't come any closer, which of course only makes Merlin more curious and he comes closer obviously. Yeah. But also Merlin, what did you think would happen if you tried to trick fate by using a rabbit's foot, like? <laughs> What? I mean, obviously his mother must have got sick the moment he made the bargain with Nimue because it takes at least like two or three days to travel from Yalda to Camelot on foot. So she probably started walking the moment she was cursed only to arrive when she did now. Yeah. The, the morning after Arthur was cured. But like, still, Merlin, you used a rabbit's foot. You were deliberately try seeing if it would do anything to save you from dying. What did you think would happen instead? Like, you know there needs to be a balance. You know someone has to die. Exactly. What did you, like, Balin, please, I know you're a teenage baby, but, like, what were you thinking? I don't think any of us expected it to be his mother there. And oh, no. It's just Definitely such not. a... This is what I'm saying. This episode is so clever in the way that it completely defies all your expectations in that, you know, we think that... the that his mother arriving in Camelot is the death and then and then it ends up being the, the complete opposite and oh and just when Gaius is kind of Merlin like when he tells him what he actually said 
to Nimue on the Isle of the Blessed, and it's just like, oh, so sweet. Um, yeah. But yeah, very, very sad that, oh, poor Hooneth. Then we have the other one with the dragon. I love which, this scene. In which Merlin finally learns about Kagara's true motives. Mm-hmm. And he is done. Like, he is done playing games. Like, I really like this scene because he is pissed. Like, rarely do we get to see him this early on being this angry. And I, you know, and also we, there's another bit like later on with Nimue where it kind of supports my argument in this. But we had a comment I can't remember who it was or what it was for specifically, but it was something to do with like Merlin not really taking much heed for magic users and focusing more on Arthur. And that I think it might have been Arch D that said it. And I think I replied to it being like, yeah, but Merlin's never really asked to be like a messiah for the magic people. He just kind of ended up being one, but he just kind of wants to live his own life. And he never wanted this. You know, he just wanted to use his magic in peace and when he yells at Kilgara I'm not one of you it's really kind of supporting my kind of theory that I'm like I don't really think Merlin cares that much about magic users as a social justice kind of thing I think he just cares about like himself not in a bad way just in like a, I I've got enough on my plate with trying to stay alive and being in a place where I'm not allowed to be myself and that's all I want is to be myself I don't really know if he cares that much about what's going on out there and he's not really like he doesn't care about the fact that him and the dragon are kin and I know he's pissed at him but I I just don't really see that which is why I think it's easy for him to you know have those moments where he can switch off and like focus on Arthur because like I think he's so clearly links his magic to like Arthur's survival and their destiny that it's not really something that's separate in terms of like there's a community of people out there that are like me um I don't know and it could just be the anger talking but later on he kind of like you know uh says the same thing to Nimue and he's talking more about them uh, like her being evil but he says I share nothing with you you know I think that there's something to that that I think he feels separate from them in a in a weird way but what do you think about that I just had this thought of it would probably be a really interesting conversation to have another time about Merlin, his privilege and how he, you know, chooses not to use his privilege to, like, protect other magic users or do more for other magic users. Yeah. That, that just, that popped into my head. It would probably be an interesting discussion to have. Like, yeah. To explain explore like further um but but that but that's kind of you know um and like i don't think we're done necessarily i talk about this scene but just very briefly to add on to what you were saying because what happens in the following scene is he says to gaius uh my powers mean nothing if i cannot save her and yeah like all i have to say about that is like you know my slytherin baby (laughs) because his slytherin is coming out in this episode in full force like you know, this is what I've said for, since the beginning of this podcast is it's people above everything else and specifically people that are his pe- his people he loves. And his mother yeah. is at the top of that list above even Arthur, you know, that he would protect her above everything. Yeah, he would have never like if had if that's what I'm saying, if Nimue had said your mother is going to die so that Arthur can live. I don't think Merlin would have made that made that deal. 
Like, it would have been hard for him, but I don't think he would have made that deal. He would have preferred that his mother live. Exactly. Because she's his mother. At Like, at this moment in time, his mother takes a precedent over everyone else. But, you know, later on, it's arguable. You know, you could say that Arthur kind of starts to take that top spot as Merlin becomes more and more obsessive with keeping him alive, you know? Yeah, that's also because they never brought Hunith back. No. <laughs> Except for, like, this short moment in like what is it season, season four. four when Gwen is in the Alder like yeah. that's the only time we ever see her again but like it's just she stops being a part of Merlin's life after season one exactly and that's just ridiculous um but everything about the scene like this is when Merlin yeah like you said Momo he finally understands his true motives when he has that moment where he's like oh you know and then the dragon yeah. tells him you know I'm more than your friend I'm your kin which I really like that line because it yeah, like family is not necessarily a good thing sometimes. Yeah, right? I was about to say that just because you're, you you are family of some or like connected of in in some way through magic or whatever, it doesn't mean I have to like you because I'm not required to love my family if my family is treating me like shit. Exactly, um, and there is a lot of Banff Merlin in this episode and the first instance is definitely in this scene when the dragon references one day being able to be free because Arthur will bring magic back to the people and Merlin just inter- flout, interrupts him and yells him you will never be released and I'm yeah. just and then my one of my favorite lines is and how his voice cracks when he says this he says for what you've done I'll make sure you never see the light and I can definitely see the hints of the Merlin that Elowen likes to write in this moment because my first instinct when I heard this line was to be like, okay, okay, I'll do whatever you say. <laughs> it's just literally like yeah. he's he's like got it down, like he's really able yeah. to like find that power. But that's what I love about Merlin is that he yeah. has it in him to be that way. But yeah. I would argue it's not in his nature. Like when it. When it comes out, it comes out. But he is happy to be subservient. He's happy to do things for the people he loves, to sacrifice things for the people he loves. And I think that when this power comes out, I think it is an outlier, but it's still a part of who he is, just not the biggest part of who he is. But it's so nice when it comes out. It really is because it reminds you, like, actually, he's a real Banff. <laughs> he really is. Yeah. What I what I will say though is that it's a bit disappointing that with with all the things that Merlin says and this like especially the um, I will make sure you never see the light and the you won't see me again and then the writers once again completely ruined it like in the very first episode of the second season when Merlin goes back to the dragon like we don't know how much time there is between the end of season one and season two. It could have been a month. It could have been a year. We don't know. But still, for us as the audience, it is not a long... It's a year. Not a long time, especially if you... I mean, yeah, when it aired, it might have been longer. But now people binge watch. Yeah, like true. no one, no one waits a year between the end of season one and the end of season two, at uh, the beginning of season two, to watch this, or like nine months or however long it was then. That's just so sad that the writers didn't go through... Like, I get that he had to go back to the dragon eventually, but they could have dragged it out at least for another half season. Mm. It would have had so much more impact than what the writers actually did with it. I completely agree. But to be fair, Momo, I don't think it's entirely 
wise to kind of be like, well, now people binge watch. Because when these episodes were written, there was no such thing as binge watching. Like, there was no Netflix. This was like, no, the, I know. you know. So. But, but even so, there were still DVDs. Yeah. And pe- but... they, they still had to expect that. Like, I mean, obviously they made DVDs so people would rebuy them and rewatch the show at the very least. I mean, I don't know that much about television production, but what I will say is that I don't think it's necessarily helpful to think about the way that TV is written in the sense of what happens once things are on home video and, like, digital entertainment because obviously television is completely based around the fact that i mean obviously now it's not so much because people do produce things for things to be aired in one go so that's completely different but when that's not the case you are writing things with the with the understanding that there will be breaks between not only each section but all the seasons will have a year's gap between them so that is your mentality going into it and you have to write with that mentality yeah i still think they should have dragged it out longer before the dragon reappears but um they could have done it better there are a lot of things they could have done better that i'm more mad about but i completely appreciate that it's a bit (laughs) we'll we'll talk about this definitely more when we get to season two we will it's not going to be long now guys (laughs) yeah so for the next part we have the one in which Merlin inadvertently guilt trips uh, Gaius into sacrificing himself. This scene uh, made me cry the first time I saw it. Yeah. This is where so I Merlin, started. Crying. Yeah. Merlin gives a lovely speech about how Gaius taught him to do what's right, which I just want to say Gaius didn't. Gaius tried to teach Merlin how to be safe, <laughs> like to do what is safe, not what is right. But um, I have had my Gaius friends. I'll stop here. And then Gaius, <laughs> and then Gaius has a silent epiphany of shit. I need to die so my adopted teenage son can live. And um, in the meantime, Merlin is like, I need to say goodbye to Arthur. And I just okay, hold up a second because last night, twenty four hours ago, Merlin thought he was going to die because he saved Arthur, and he knew that Arthur was awake and was going to be fine, but he didn't go to see him leaving his duties to Gwen of all people. And now Merlin expects to die again, this time for his mother, and finally remembers that maybe he should go see how Arthur's doing and also to say goodbye to everyone. Like, this is one of those moments where the writers decided that character relationships were only to be used when it's convenient. Like, Yeah, but it really... I I do remember when I first saw this scene, it made me so emotional. And yeah, it like that kind of for it to end with him saying, I need to say goodbye to Arthur and how it, it just, you know, I don't know. It, it, there's something about that that just made it feel very final at the time. Obviously, even then, like I knew that wasn't the end because season two had already aired. But I feel like it's important like f- for me anyway. I like to buy into what I'm watching at the time. And sometimes you know, it doesn't matter that I know that someone's going to survive or not survive because the journey to get there is what's important. And, you know, otherwise I would, you know, films like Moulin Rouge and Titanic would have no impact on me because I know the ending. But sometimes knowing the ending is more impactful and it makes me, you know, it kind of, I can rest assured that I know Merlin's not going to die, but I still get 
the emotional pain of like watching him having to say goodbye to all these people and knowing that he thinks he's going to die. And that kind of is a really cool disconnect of being able to enjoy the angst, but it's not real, you know? So it's kind of, it's quite nice in that way, but um, yeah. very, very sad scene. Uh, followed by a beautiful Mirtha scene, <laughs> which yeah. I love. I just, it's a classic. It's an absolute classic. And the quotes in here, let's dissect it. <laughs> Yeah. Let's go. You have some positive things to say, I think. I, for I actually do. Yeah. Um so this this moment where um Merlin is like, You're a prat and a royal one and just also just smiles fondly in return where in the first episode he would have had Merlin in the stocks or the dungeon for this. It's just that's that's nice. Like even from a platonic point of view, this is a nice relationship development that we have here. And it's it's a shame that it only shows up occasionally in these genuine moments where they're on the same page, an author doesn't actually insult or abuse Merlin, and so Merlin allows himself to be a bit cheeky, and an author can find it endearing, you know. And it works in this scene because we know Merlin figures he's got nothing to lose and it won't matter if Arthur is angry with him for being a cheeky sod because Merlin will leave and never come back. That's what he thinks anyway. Uh, but at least Arthur will be alive. And so Merlin is like, you know, I can I can tell him sort of what I think, like be be more truthful uh, and, and put my heart on my sleeve. And I just I like their dynamic in in this in this scene like their insults and their banter when it's like this like this works it's you know when it's like this in this scene then it's great it's just that a lot of the time over the course of the show it isn't like it's this like but this. when it is like this then it's great yeah it's and it's great um, it's it's lovely and I can almost forgive the writers for poking holes in their own plot. Just so they could pack all the heartfelt emotions into this goodbye scene rather than having to do two goodbye scenes with the second one having to be the one that's actually more emotional while also making us all believe that the first one would have been the real one. But like, yeah, this this scene sort of makes up for this for this plot hole now. Almost. Almost. <laughs> and then there's the um I'm happy to be your servant till the day I die. And I know he means I wish I could stay alive to serve you forever. But also, Merlin, you literally expect to die pretty soon. And you're going to have to take off work for three days to reach a destination. So your words ring a bit hollow when you actually think about it. I don't think he... I think he's... I think he means it completely literally. Like, even though tomorrow is going to be my last day or whatever, I'm... You know, this is my purpose up until that point anyway. I don't know. Like, that's yeah. how I always read it. And but... I, I also feel like, um, for all my griping, but I feel like Merlin says it more for Arthur's benefit than than his own, just to show Arthur that Merlin is loyal to him and that Arthur is worthy of having people this loyal to him. Yeah. So, and I, as just a side note, I really like how soft Arthur looks in this scene. He's just he does. With, the, with the light, with the rumpled hair and just the the, the nice firelight on him and just the, the fond smiles. I just, he looks so soft and touchable in this scene. I love it. It's such a great scene. Um, I have a lot of things that I like about this scene. I 
Uh, first of all, I love um, the little kind of acting choices. So when Merlin first comes into the room and Arthur says that he owes his recovery to Gaius, Merlin just kind of looks down. He's like, yep, even on my day of death, it's going to be like this. <laughs> like even today, I am going to be overlooked and Gaius or someone else is going to get the credit. Yeah. But <laughs> um and uh while they're talking um i love bradley's choices of like he's like gripping his arm and like wincing like because he's obviously got a bite there and it's just like that's i i just really appreciate that like we talked about bradley's Mm -hmm. physicality with his acting and just that little kind of like touch is really great you know that reminds us he's injured and you know hurting um He's alive, but he's still recovering yeah. from the actual physical wound. Exactly. Yeah. Um, the banter is just really, really sweet. And I, what I particularly think is really nice about this scene is that it purposefully gives the audience a symmetry between the first time they met and then this is the finale and it's been 13 episodes and look at the journey, you know, that these guys have gone on and yeah. how... That's the first thing he said to him when they met was, you know, you're you're a royal prat. And, you know, he got a no, no, royal ass, a royal ass. Uh, I'm pretty sure. He no. Said... How long have you been trained to be a prat? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. My yeah. lord, you know, um, yeah. with the eyes. Um, yeah. And I just there's something like I love me a good parallel. Anyone that follows me on Tumblr will know that. <laughs> I'm all about the parallels and I just think that this is such a lovely one and I'm sure they did it on purpose you know they really wanted you to think about you know how far they've come for one another and like you said Momo it's just a really beautifully lit scene it's calm it's soft they so rarely have quiet moments like this where they're really heartfelt especially this early on they have a lot more of them as we go on in the show but at this point they really haven't had that many of them and it's meant to really you know impact you very very strongly and my kind of I just love the fact that they're on two different pages here you know Arthur is very much kind of taking in what Merlin's saying but still being a little confused by it but he's just like oh that's just Merlin he's just talking crap as usual you know and just doesn't understand the weight behind the words like that Merlin is you know what he understands to be true which is that I'm going to die tomorrow you know that's it this is over for us and Arthur just obviously can't comprehend that doesn't know that that's the case and it just makes me think of the thing that Gaius said to Arthur in season four which was that you know one day you will understand just how much they've done for you and it's just the first of many moments here where he just doesn't know like and it's so lovely to watch kind of the different kind of the different lives that they're leading where Merlin knows so much and Arthur knows so little. And it's just really, really tragic for them, you know, kind of um, in the long run. Also, there's a uh, a shot which I absolutely love. I use it in my videos all the time. And it's after um, Arthur says, hey, any other pointers? And Merlin goes, no, that's it. And he kind of self-consciously looks down. So he's not actually looking at Arthur. And then when his eyes are off of Arthur, uh, the camera cuts to him and he's just like looking at Merlin like I can't even pinpoint what this look is but it's just so like you said soft and like kind and really really earnest and um very much not the look he had on his face when Merlin was actually looking him in the eye <laughs> and I'm just sort of like oh 
such a beautiful scene between them and yeah ending with don't be a prat just classic Martha Merlin shuts the door leaving Arthur very confused as to what just happened to him but he's gonna have to get used to that because this is gonna be their relationship for the next decade just Merlin confusing Arthur every single day and Arthur just kind of learning to go along with it you know I'm gonna save your life yeah 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 all right Merlin yeah cool with whose army yeah all right sweetie all right (laughs) it's just like i promise i'm gonna save your life i protect you all the time yeah okay okay (laughs) you know so i think this is just kind of the beginning of that and ah i love it and i'm glad you like this scene it's rare that you like things these days (laughs) (laughs) yeah i've come this person who just hates everything no but i i actually i do like this scene it's a it's a good scene so do we want to talk about anything with nurse gwen like I said, when I first saw this episode, just these goodbye scenes, one after the other after the other, they just just tears everywhere. And, you know, now I'm I, like I'm a bit more hardened to them. But at the time, they were just so sad. And Merlin sitting next to his dying mother, you know, saying goodbye to her. It was come on, guys. <laughs> and giving her the rabbit's foot. And I will say, though, I, I I don't know what they were thinking in terms of the writing here, but I don't believe for one second that Hooneth, being, I think, very aware of what Merlin is saying here, that he's going to die, is just happy to sit there and say, I'll miss you. Like, even in this, she walked from Eldor in that state, and yet she's just going to lay there happily. No problem. Like, you know, if I were his mother, I'd, I'd, I don't know, I'd crawl you know out of bed and lock him in a cupboard or something i i, I don't know i like i do something i wouldn't just lay there and say i'll miss you <laughs> what <laughs> you're his mother like this is the weirdest dialogue ever it's really really strange yes it is yeah very very sweet and him giving her the rabbit's foot at the end was just oh <laughs> this episode man it's just it, it's a lot so then we have the one with Gaius's goodbye letter and I'm only including this because this is where we learned that the title card of Merlin, the show, is actually Gaius's handwriting. Like, if you look at the way Merlin is written yeah. on the letter, that's almost exactly what it's... Like, if you clean it up a little more, that's what the title card looks like. I really like that a lot. It's really cool. <laughs> um, I find it interesting that it is Gaius's handwriting. Like, I mean, or that they chose to make that Gaius's handwriting. I mean, you know... I think they wanted a lot more for that character. I really do. Um, but I don't know. Or it could have just been a cool little Easter egg. <laughs> um, I actually really like this scene. This letter, oh my God, it gives us so much insight into Guy's' character that like, you just, in my opinion, don't get before now. You know, my life has had very little purpose to it thus far. You know, bearing in mind how old this guy is already, he really feels as if though his his life has just been kind of wasted. And that just is really interesting to me, especially since he's in a very privileged position of someone that, in my opinion, does a lot of good for the kingdom. He heals people. He is a he's a, he's a doctor. He's looked after the king. He's probably helped raise his son. Uh, you know that that's but that's how he sees himself is that. Uh, you know, up until Merlin, you know, to help cultivate his gifts, he's had no purpose in his life. It makes me wonder if maybe he was just kind of, he uh, regrets having never had his own kids. Maybe that's what he feels is it was like missing from his life, you know? Um, yeah. It's just really, really sad, um, you know, and how he's just willing to, you know, go off and do this. And I'm, okay, 
when I watched this episode with my friend Annie, she was convinced that Gaius was going to die in this episode. Like, that was it. And I have a very interesting question for Momo and for everyone listening. Should Gaius have died in this episode? That's it. No more Gaius. We just had him for one season and now Merlin's on his own. I mean, I was waiting for Gaius to die pretty much the entire show. Um, Not because I don't like him, just because I expected him to die at some point. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Like, honest, now, I don't know what it would have been like if Gaius had died at the end of season one. Merlin's on his own. All Morgana stuff. He has to, you know, how interesting would season two have been? No reset button there. You know. Yeah. He's got to. That's probably why. They, that's probably why he didn't die. <laughs> <laughs> well, they didn't. He didn't die at the end of season two either. All three or four or five. <laughs> yeah, I just had this thought earlier when we were still talking about um his handwriting is um how maybe Merlin the show because Gaius is still alive at the end of season five and he's the only one who knows pretty much the full scope of what Merlin has done apart from Merlin himself. So Gaius is basically the one telling us about it, and that's why the title card is in his handwriting. Oh, I love that. Because Gaius is the one who finally sat down and told Merlin's story. I really love that, because so, Merlin just kind of went off into the wilderness on his own. Yeah, Merlin just Merlin just got on a bus and went somewhere. Let's, you know, send us your uh, ideas for what season two would have been like if Gaius had actually uh, died at the end of this episode, because then Nimue would have uh, lived, and that also would have been something I would have been very interested uh, in seeing. Nimue would not have necessarily have lived, I feel like. Like, he could have just... He could have still killed Nimue and Gaius still would have been dead. Yeah, maybe. Um, when Merlin is riding out, um, it's uh, hashtag not Colin. And the reason why I think you can tell is because as he's riding out, the rider makes a very distinct effort to lower his head and cover his face with his arm. <laughs> so we can't see how very much not Colin he is. And it just makes me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> it just makes it so obvious that he's not Colin. Exactly. Like, when has Merlin ever ridden a horse like that? Like some kind of Zorro, like, you know, hunched over. No. <laughs> um the next one we have is the one with Morgana by the window. I mean, I'm just like, why is Morgana in these random scenes? Like why? Yes. And it makes me it makes me wonder how much she knows and what the point of her knowing all of it is. Like, we're supposed to believe that she knows something bad is going on and she she foresaw Arthur getting bitten and almost dying and then she saw, what, Merlin's mother getting ill and that's why she tried to warn Merlin? Or, I just, what is the point of Morgana knowing any of this if no one listens to her? Like, she's not Cassandra, she's Morgana. And if she doesn't draw conclusions about Merlin's ability to apparently heal incurable magical diseases, then what is the point of her knowing any of this? Like, literally, the only reason they're pushing this now is because they want to foreshadow season two. But it could have done that just with Morgana's vision at the beginning and the end of the episode, rather than whatever it is she's presumably seeing in between and also if they wanted to push this thing of Morgana having visions like the only other time in season one she has a vision is in Gates of Avalon like why not spread this out more across the season why not have a couple more 
instances like you don't even have to make it explicit by showing her having a nightmare she could just mention it to Gwen like oh it feels like I've seen this before I feel like um, I knew this would happen you know it just just give us the sense of Morgana having visions and and having deja vu just do it better <laughs> exactly um so the next uh scene that we have is the one where Gaius and Nimue meet again I love this scene I really do like Gaius calling Nimue my lady, I completely forget that that happens. And it's just, again, the prequel that I really want. (laughs) And it makes me like, okay, because we don't know how old Nimue is, right? And obviously she looks young now and probably, you know, did they have a thing, do you think? Ooh, I mean, the the most common fandom theory is that Nimue and Igrain had a thing. Oh, no, I prefer this one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah, just like that, my lady. It's been a long time since you called me that, you know? Yeah, I, I, I see what you that mean. Could, yeah. That could, you know, I don't know. When I when I was watching that scene, it occurred to me that Nimue has a thing for taking mother's lives. Like, she took Igraine for Arthur and then Huna for Merlin for Arthur. <laughs> Nimue has a thing for moms. It's, conf- it's confirmed. <laughs> uh, yeah, this entire scene is just, again, for fuck's sake, all of this really interesting meaty stuff about what happened then and you know stuff about Gaius's character and Nimue's character and their relationship and her place in all of this and you know her accusing him of being a traitor and watching as people died and I'm just why was all of this dropped (laughs) why It was so interesting. Um, and just the, are you ready to die, Gaius? And him saying, for Merlin, I will give my life. Oh, God. Aww. Even Momo's having feelings about this. Look <laughs> 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 what you did, guys. Look what you did, guys. You made Momo have feelings. Um, and then Merlin shows up and, oh. Yeah. My my title for this scene is the one where Merlin smites Nimue because that's what he does. Like that's such a dramatic way to kill her. Like call down a bolt of lightning from the heavens to just evaporate her where she stands. My husband is extra, and that's exactly how I like she him. Just, okay, she just explodes. I mean, um, given that she wasn't that big an adversary except for the beginning of the season and one episode more than halfway through it it didn't really make sense for me that that it's that he kills her in such a dramatic way like i mean i feel like they could have drawn out the nimue plot longer or just put her in more episodes in the first season that would have made more sense for like for me this showdown was too over the top for the for the rivalry they actually had which was barely there exactly but it's still more interesting than any showdowns that Merlin and Morgana ever had. So that's true. That is that is very true. Um, they they went the other way and too far the other way. Um, just... But but I'm glad that you brought this up, uh, their relationship, because I am very much interested in the the chemistry that they have in these two scenes that they're together. Because especially in this one. Nimue, and I'm not a massive fan of her character or Michelle Ryan's acting for that matter, but there's something about, and I, it, 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 it's her whole look. It's the blue eyes. It's the, it's the pale face. It's the kind of demeanor she has. And 
you know, there's a bit here where he says, you know, um, uh, oh God, what does he say? Uh, he says something and then she responds with, come now. We are too valuable to each other to be enemies. She has this way of speaking that is so inviting and like, you know, I'm your friend, don't you know? And then she'll shout in the next moment and then she's calm again. It's so low-key. Like I said, like she is low-key in this show. Um, It's really cool. And I am just so upset that we were robbed of, like you said, a whole season of them being rivals, you know? And yeah doing stuff together because I think that, you know, they were so interesting and, you know, for him to actually maybe be tempted to join her, but this entire scene is just amazing. And, uh, but, but okay. But there are like a couple of lines that don't make much sense to me, which is like the old religion does not care who lives and who dies. And my response to that is really no way because it seems to be doing exactly what you tell it. (laughs) It doesn't seem to me like there's, you know, (laughs) much, uh, drawing of the straws here. You seem to be pulling all of, you know, calling all the shots. I mean, what I, what I would argue is, um, I can see that, that the, that not Nimoy is the one who decides who lives or dies, but like, because the, the concept is for a life, uh, another life must be given, you know? So when Arthur was born, Igraine died and arguably both Igraine and Arthur are of equal value emotionally to Uther. So, he gained a son, but he lost the love of his life. And for Merlin, he wanted desperately to save Arthur because he sees Arthur as the as the center of his life, as his purpose. And in return for Arthur's life, his mother would have to go, who is the other most important person in Merlin's life, the one who gave him life, the one who who he wants to protect as much, if not more, as he wants to protect Arthur. So I feel like an argument could be made that it's not actually Nimue who made these choices. It is actually magic, fate, or whatever it is that they use to, you know, return life to someone or give life to someone. Yeah, but the problem with that is is that Nimue still knows this. And so she makes it... The way she says it here is that, like, I have nothing to do with it. It's all, like, I know nothing. And that's clearly yeah. bullshit. And, it's, yeah, okay, and that's yeah, what she... frustrates me, you know? I mean, to be honest, does she? did she really know it would be Merlin's mother who will die? I, I feel like she just knew it wouldn't be Merlin. Do we do we find out that she actually knew it would be Huna? No, but at the end of the day, we literally have Gaius coming to the Isle of the Blessed saying, for Merlin, I will give my life. And then she takes his life without a, without a problem. So she clearly has some influence, you know? And I just, I don't, and I think, you know, the implication is when she grabs his hand and says, I hope this pleases you, you know, <sighs> She knows, okay, maybe she isn't 100% sure that it's going to be his mother 100%. Like, even the dragon said, I knew the price would be a high one. But even that, even knowing that, she should have told him. And that, you know, doesn't make her, yeah. obviously, innocent. And yeah. No, I mean, I, I'm i not excusing her. Like, yeah. obviously, she knew it would be someone super important to Merlin. And she should have warned him that, listen, it's not going to be you. It's someone else who is as important 
to you as author is important. But how can Gaius choose then? How can she just take Gaius's life? Yeah, wife? but that yeah, that's that's where it doesn't make sense anymore. It's like because she's so... she's a bullshitter. She literally <laughs> she thrives off bullshit and then pretends to be innocent. Oh, I knew nothing of it, Grace. No, Nimue's like trying to make herself innocent pisses me off. It's just, but this is why I also like her because she's such a bullshitter and she works really well as a villain. Cause you never know with her. You never know yeah. what actually is yeah. happening. And that makes her interesting yeah, to that's me. True. That is very um, true. And I mean, we have some more Banff Merlin, you know, yeah. uh, and one of my favorite lines ever, like, and actually I should have probably mentioned this for line delivery for Colin, because it's just like, you know, I like possessive Merlin and protective Merlin, like, very very much and when she says to him with my help arthur will become king and he says i will make arthur king and i'm like "Ooh, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> really hands off my king right <laughs> it's so good and he's like and you will never see that day and then douche fire and i'm just like <laughs> okay like merlin you can you can buy me a drink anytime <laughs> <laughs> yeah but you know digging deeper into that what if what's nimue's plan why does she want to be like we we're gonna spend hours discussing nimue's plan what with my help arthur will will become king why do you want arthur if you want arthur to become king so much then why do you keep causing problems for everyone yeah why didn't you just i mean we get that for life another life has to be given but like if you're so intent on making Arthur king, why not just help Merlin figure out the best way to save Arthur without bullshitting him about who's going to die? That... Like, it's just... Nimway. That's That's where I'm like, she doesn't actually care about it. She just wants to manipulate Merlin. That's It's not actually about making Arthur king, it's about manipulating Merlin into making Merlin do what she wants. Exactly. And I can't decide whether the writers purposefully just made her a bit, like, ambiguous because they wanted her to be like that but for example like okay so she says with my help arthur will become king literally like a minute later when she's like like taken merlin down she goes pity together we could have ruled the world so now ruling the world is your master plan not making arthur king (laughs) it's just very also if she wanted to draw merlin onto her side why kill his mother like assuming that she was the one who had the power to choose who else dies like <sighs> Nimoy, please and so we have the showdown with the you know the the balls of fire which i think is actually quite cool like like i said it's much more interesting than anything that we had between morgana and merlin and then she walks up to him gives him the you know the uh villain moment speech whatever walks off and then merlin's eyes open and he gets up dun, dun. and we have the dun, 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 dun music and we just get that amazing you should not have killed my friend and again buy me a drink anytime <laughs> <laughs> after after we had Banff Merlin guys comes back to life and then he says something like you amaze me and every time he says it no matter the concept, context it always sounds sarcastic <laughs> I love that you amaze me and then he's like, if he could stop the blasted rain. And I'm just, Merlin just committed murder of the highest order for you. And you're complaining about the rain. 
guys, please. He has his priorities in order. I mean, I'm surprised that the guy didn't actually die of pneumonia being the age that he is on a cold stone slab with the pouring rain. Merlin doesn't look like he's in any hurry to get them out of there. He's about to take a nap. He's just going to go to sleep. <laughs> but this does begin our annual tradition of ending the season on Merlin and Gaius laughing or being very happy about what's been going on in the world. Yeah. I mean, it's not the exact end scene because the last scene is the one with the foreshadowing for next season. Oh, yeah. And, like, that's the only reason Morgana was put into this episode. Like, we've said it already. Rather than give her something to do, like, worry about Arthur... She gets to have three nightmares. She gets to have three nightmares, and she still doesn't understand anything. And it's just, uh, it's just so annoying that they try to shove this down our throats in the very last episode just to create intrigue for a potential second season, rather than make it an actual plot point throughout the season, or save it until next season, or just. What they also could have done is just never mention it before, ever, and only have let her have one, maybe two nightmares in this episode. Exactly. Like, it's just, the way they did it is just so inconsistent and all over the place and just... <sighs> it's very, very frustrating. Um, But... Again, they I think they were planning on a very different season two to the one they ended up writing, which is the only way I can explain that ending. Um, so, yeah. yeah, I mean, that was La Morte d'Arthur and the end of season one. Yeah, I really like this episode. I really do. And I I watch it happily um, whenever I'm kind of in a, a position to do so. I really, really like it. And uh, yeah, I wish that more episodes were like this concise, tight you know, getting their point across and really, really well-paced, well-acted, relatively well-written as well as can be for this show. Um, (laughs) And yeah, very few complaints on my part. I really, really like it a lot. And I'm very excited to talk about season two because I actually, weirdly enough, have more nostalgic feelings for season two than season one. I think it has something to do with the fact that season two was the one that was airing when I first got into Merlin. So that could be why. But yeah, like I never watched season one live, whereas I watched the latter half of two live. So I feel like that gives me more feels. But I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's Colin's cheekbones. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, I think we're going to leave it here for today. And we will come back in a week to give more of a season one overall wrap up commentary, because we still have a lot of thoughts about season one that we want to that we want to share with you guys and yeah i just want to give quick credits to sidesteppings who composed our Melissant theme music i also want to give credits to manzardian on freesound.org who composed our news jingle and i want to say that i'm a motastic or Momotastic27 on pretty much all platforms. You can find me on AO3 for fanfic and also as Momopods on AO3 for podfic. 
and I am Miss Snowfox pretty much everywhere on the internet apart from YouTube where I am Magical Unicorn 22 where you can find my fan vids. I'm Miss Snowfox with an extra X on Tumblr, Miss Snowfox with an extra X on Twitter and I'm Miss Snowfox on Instagram and Miss Snowfox Cosplays which as the name suggests is where my cosplay stuff is at and I think that's pretty much all of the important places where I'm at uh I don't really use LJ so <laughs> I'm also Miss Snowfox on AO3 but I haven't posted there to, for a while but you can find my pod fic and my fic on there if that's how you choose to waste your time so uh yeah there you go have at it <laughs> so yeah like we said we'll talk to you guys in a week and until then I'll be Momotastic and I'm Miss Snowfox bye bye